fill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, 
southern-sense.com and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most distant radio chick, Annie, along with my guest co-host until Curtis can come back with us, my husband, Yanni. So say hello, Yanni. Make sure you're up. Oh, oh, oh i got to unmute you. Sorry about that. Try that again. <laughs> Try that again. Good afternoon. <laughs> oh, man. We got ourselves a jam-packed show today, uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Uh, our first guest up is going to be Dr. Cyril Weick. Uh He is known as being in the forensic uh, coroner for the nation. Uh, he's dealt with the JFK, RFK, uh, John Bonet Ramsey, uh, Lacey Peterson. He has had his fingers in just about any major uh, uh, criminal activity uh, as a coroner. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him. He's got a new book out. It's about his life. It's called The Life and Deaths of Cyril White, uh, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. He's going to sh- start off the show with us. Uh, and then we're going to have our friend, Dr. Bruce Hartman, uh, come on. Uh, he's got several different books out. One is Jesus and Company. Uh, another one is Your Faith Has Healed You. And the latest one is, um, oh, good Lord, Spend a Year with Jesus, an inspirational journey of finding Jesus and faith, which came out just last year. Uh, he's going to come on and talk to us about a myriad of different subjects. Uh, we're going to also have Neil... Alston, uh, he was a formal Google big shot or whatever. Uh, he found faith. He has uh, several different websites that deal with helping people come back to faith. Uh, the latest one is called Abide, and he had put together seven days of Chris- Christmas, uh, a way in which to bring yourself closer to faith and Christ uh, over the holidays. And then... Um, <laughs> Well, he's going to try to squeeze us in. Our friend from Heritage, Jonathan Butcher, um, he actually is going to be on One America News uh, at 3.30 our time. And he's going to try to squeeze in, hopefully get off of there in time to join us. Otherwise, we'll get him back next week. Um, He has written a great paper about critical racial theory. Uh, And this is what we're seeing. We are being told we have white privilege. We see one section of our nation being pitted against the other. Male versus female, gay versus straight, black versus white versus Latino versus Asian versus Native American. You name the flavor of the month. And the left has found a way to divide us. Instead of being Americans first, unhyphenated Americans They want to divide us. And he's going to be talking about what that critical racial theory has been doing to our nation and how it came about. Uh, I don't think we're going to have enough time, so we're definitely going to have to bring him back on to to really delve into this. 
Uh, so we've got a lot to do and a lot to talk about. Are we ready to rock and roll, Yanni? Mm-hmm. All right, you got to speak a little bit closer to you, Mike. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Uh, I want to welcome everyone that's showing up in the chat room that's over here as well as over on Facebook. Uh, I'll try to keep an eye in both rooms so that I can respond to any of your comments. Uh, but anyone that listens to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And sometimes someone just pops out and they seem to be very outstanding. Mm, excuse me, I needed a sip of water. They seem to be very outstanding. Uh, and sometimes people have such talent and the privilege to to use that talent and then step away because they felt they need to serve. And one such person is police officer Dan Walters. And today's show is dedicated to police officer Dan Walters of the San Diego Police Department in California. His end of watch was Thursday, April 23rd of this year. And I got to read something that was written six years ago about Dan, even though he passed away this year. And it, it gives you an idea of who this gentleman is. And this is from glasslampball.com by Joe Lanick. And he writes, Dan Walter's life has been one of perseverance. I could have written these words in 1992 when a 26-year-old Walters made his first major league debut in his eighth pro season. In 1995, when he he returned to the game after missing a year following a spinal injury. Or in 1997, when he walked again after a second, even more serious spinal injury. Perseverance was again in full display when the Santana High graduate fulfilled a lifelong dream of becoming a San Diego police officer in 1999. But all of that was just a precursor to what he has endured for the past decade. On the night of November 12, 2003, Walter saw another cruiser stop with its blue lights on, so he pulled over to back him up. Uninformed of the peril that he was entering, Walters was immediately rushed by a gunman who had already fired on a fellow officer. After a brief struggle, the subject shot him point-blank in the neck. Walters' body was then struck and pinned under the car of a passing motorist. Officer Walters remembers much of what happened that night and has since been filled in on the rest. That last November, he recounted the events to Fred Dickey of the Union Tribune. I'm not going to block quote, quote his recollection of being shot, but the whole piece is definitely worth a read if you can stomach that sort of thing. Since the shooting, Walters has been paralyzed from the neck down, save for the minimal use of his left arm. The paralysis mercifully left him with enough movement in his left arm and hand that he can stiffly perform some basic functions, change channels on the remote, manage his wheelchair, shake hands after a fashion, scratch his nose, and that's about it. 
it's all in the left arm. See, if you look at my body, the left arm has a little bit more muscular development. The other arm is completely atrophied. I can barely move this left one. If you look at this right wrist, it's completely limp. Dickie also details the agony Walter's faces every morning he wakes up, day after thousands of days. One of the evils of his type of paralysis is that the movement is prevented, but not pain. Walter spends much of the day in bed, forced there by pains that won't quit, pains that shoot through his body and limbs like electric current. He has a pain pump that helps but helps is a weak word that often means very much. In addition to the constant physical pain he battles, Walters also suffers from clinical depression, but continues to persevere like he always has. In 2009, the International Latino Gang Investigators Association, ILGIA, publicly recognized Walters as a hero in our midst at its fourth annual gang conference in his hometown of San Diego. At the time, a fellow author said of him, Dan has his ups and downs during his baseball career, and he strived to achieve his best in the face of adversity. As a police officer, Dan is a cop's cop. Like the Marine who never gives up his title, Dan is still a cop to the core. Today, Dan is a symbol of great strength, determination, and perseverance. Yet, he is as humble and modest a man you will ever meet. This was written in August of 2014. And today, we read from the San Diego Union Tribune by John Moffey. And it reads, Dan Walters who appeared in 84 games for the Padres in 1992 and 93, died Thursday, April 23rd, from ongoing complications related to an injury he suffered in the line of duty while he was a San Diego police officer. Walters, who played at Santana High, was 53. His death is considered a line of duty fatality. A San Diego Police Department dispatcher came over the police radio to announce Walter's death or end of watch. Dan grew up locally, played professional baseball here in San Diego, and proudly served as his city as a police officer. SDPD said in a statement he will forever be remembered by the members of this department. A video posted by the San Diego Police Department on that Thursday afternoon showed two officers standing over Walters, his body and bed draped in a large American flag. As officers moved Walters' still flag-draped body outside on a gurney, a large group from the police department, including Chief David Neslett, stood at attention in the driveway. Eight motorcycle officers and three SUVs escorted a van carrying Walters' body. San Diego Police Department Post. Today, we render honors to our brother, Officer Dan Walters, who died as a result of injuries sustained on duty 
in 2003. We are thankful for Dan and his legacy of continuing on despite the circumstances life presented him. Our department will never forget you, Dan. Walters joined the police department in 1998, two years after his baseball career ended when he suffered a severe spinal injury, diving for a ball during a spring training drill in Arizona. Tragedy, the tragic story with Dan said with the Padres when Walters played and later a manager for the Padres and the San Francisco Giants. A terrific person who was a great teammate, could really catch and throw. He had some pop to his bat. This is a sad story of a man who was serving his community as a policeman. Walters hit 234 with five homers and 32 RBIs in his two major league seasons while backing up Benito Santiago in 1992 and sharing catching duties with Red Osmus and Bob Garin in 93. He was drafted in the fifth round by the Houston Astros in 1984 and was traded to the Padres in 1989. He later played in the Colorado Rockies and the Oakland A's organization, but never made it back to the major leagues. In a 1999 interview with the Union Tribune, Walter said, becoming a policeman was something I have had in the back of my mind, even playing. I have a cousin who has been a cop in Houston for the past 15 years. He got me interested. On November 12th of 2003, five years into his new profession, he was on patrol on 43rd Street in the Southeast San Diego when he came across officers who were responding to a domestic violence dispute. When Walters arrived on the scene, shots had already been fired. He exited his patrol car and was immediately confronted by the suspect. As the two struggled, Walters was shot in the neck. I heard a bag, Walters told the Union Tribune in 2013, and I'm falling to the ground, looking up at this guy thinking, Oh, God, I can't believe it. I'm dead. I felt nothing. I was looking straight up, and I again thought, can't believe it. I'm dead. Then it all went black. After being shot, Walters was struck by a passing motorist and suffered two crushed cervical vertebrae. The suspect was killed by officers. Walters was left paralyzed and remained in a wheelchair until the time of his death. In the 2013 interview, he said, It's hard to believe it's been 10 years. I didn't expect to be around this long. Asked if he relived the incident at all, Walters said, Unfortunately, throughout the day, every day, some days a lot worse than others. Dr. Steve Albright, one of Walters' closest friends, said the two men were workout partners in El Cajon, in 1996, before Walters became a policeman. I loved him dearly, Albrecht said. He came on the PD with two steel rods in his spine from his baseball injury. He chose to start a tough job that causes more people to retire. It's so sad and ironic that he made his living with his body as a pro ball player and a cop to then get paralyzed. 
He was in so much physical and emotional pain from his shooting injury. He lived through so many serious infections, had to take so many medications, but mostly crappy medical care from a string of caregivers in his house. I know that he's no longer in pain. Albright said Walters was a hell of a motivational speaker, even though he was too proud to admit he had that talent. His best friend on the PD was Chris Wilson, who was killed on duty in 2010. He spoke at Chris's funeral, and you could have heard a pin drop. Walters was adopted, and both of his parents had died. He survived by his sister, Trisha Turner. I'll remember my pal Hancho, his smile, his love for baseball, and watching a ball game and eating pizza at his house, his two cats sitting in his lap. This was written by staff writers David Hernandez and Alice Wigan. And I will add, police officer Dan Williams, you are end of tour, a job well done. We'll take over from here. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Dan Walters. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to the men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
just gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. But they're vicious to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth. It was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high. But we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Fort Chop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. 
there on the Western Front. He was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. All right, and we're back with Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick. Annie, ready to check a D to say correctly. And we have on with us our guest, uh, Dr. Cyril Reich. If I can get my little computer to start behaving, it's misbehaving. Oh, come on, computer. If anything can go wrong, will go wrong. Usually it's every Friday, it's Friday the 13th with me. Anyway, I want to welcome aboard Dr. Cyril Reich. Uh, he has no, 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 a new I'm book sorry. out called The Name I'm is sorry, Weck, like, like a W E K T. It's not white. It's Weck, W-E-C-H-T, pronounced the C-H like a K. Cyril Weck, W-E-C-H-T, pronounced like W-E-K-T. It's not white. Dr. Weck, I apologize. I don't know where you got white. I apologize. Well, uh, people mispronounce my last name because my husband's from Latvia, so everyone messes yeah. up our well, last name. Well, I know. I just wanted to correct it before you continue with the program, though. So you may want oh, to start no, again. Oh, no, no, Oh, no, I appreciate that. I deeply appreciate that because I understand where you're coming from. When someone messes up your name, it just kind of like rankles you a little bit, and I don't blame you in the well, least Well, it's not bit. that it rankles you... me. It's just that people, then, people are confused, then if they go, uh, if they want to buy the book or so on, they're not going to know the name. Uh, well, it's up on our show page, so people can just click on it and go directly to Amazon and get your wonderful book called The Life and Death of Zero Weck. Memoirs of America's most controversial forensic pathologist, and I, I was—I have to admit, I am a retired police officer in New York City, and so you know, something like this, you know, fascinated me. And as I was reading your book, um, I was enjoying it immensely. Now, one thing that always rankled me really, really badly is that the idea that all cops are bad. You know, I've—I've I've worked with uh, only a handful 
out of the entire command, which was less than 1% that ever actually proven to be bad. But they're the ones that give us the worst name. And thankfully, you helped expose these, these, I call them hair bags, uh, and then help us clean our name up. Yes, well, um, my stance with regard to uh, police, uh, my my program, if I were high police <coughs> commissioner, um, it would be this. I would um, raise the educational requirements for people who want to be considered as police officers. Number two, I would undertake extensive psychological testing to get their background, make sure they don't have... Uh, problems which they not even may not even be conscious of, then I would have a prolonged educational training program in which they have the opportunity to hear from sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, medical examiners, coroners, and, um, and then even in communities where there are um, <clears throat> minority groups in neighborhoods to have them go in there and meet and work with community leaders, church leaders. Uh, young groups and so on, uh, because um, many Caucasians who become police officers uh, don't even know anything about the way uh, African Americans function. Uh, They've never had the opportunity to be in those neighborhoods. Um, And then um, I would have continuing uh, intermittent psychological testing, make sure that those people are not encountering problems uh, and so on that have to be dealt with, and then I would significantly increase the pay for police officers. I do not believe that they are paid enough. So that would be my program on how to deal with police, not to uh, withhold police funds, not to uh, just uh, deal with it in the way in which uh, some groups have been calling for. That is uh, stupid, that is mindless, and accomplishes nothing. I have a huge amen to that one, because at the time I entered... You had to have a minimum of two years college, a minimum, or having served in the military. A lot of departments have dropped those standards to increase their recruitment, and that is a standard I don't agree with. You did have to go through extensive psychological uh, uh, examination. You did have to uh, have a complete and absolute background check. I had to go back to the very first traffic ticket you know, and explain it away. Yeah. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of departments to recruit... Uh, would drop their standards. And unfortunately, in today's environment, what person honestly wants to become a police officer when you see what's going on out there? Yeah, you're, you're quite right. Uh, <clears throat> we are in agreement on that, that's for sure. And then, again, continuing training throughout their career. Now, we would go every three to six months for various different types of training in NYPD. You know, these are standards that should not be dropped that help you maintain a quality police officer out there. And one of the things I'm big on is community policing, having the cops down there on the street talking to the people out there. And, you know, I I used to walk around with the New York Times crossword puzzle in my pocket when I walked the beat, and it's a lot of fun when you go into a bodega and they try to give you the answer to the New York Times crossword puzzle in Spanish. But, you know, you, you don't know what's going on unless you've got the boots on the ground. Yes, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And I don't understand in this uh, great country of ours why such a program has not been implemented. It should not be that difficult. 
and, you, well, and as far as money is concerned, but, but, you would wind up you would wind up saving money. Um, these uh, lawsuits against police they are, they <clears throat> they run in the millions of dollars. Um, the people don't know about because criminal charges usually are not pursued, and that's another matter by the local district attorneys against the police. Uh, but uh, what people don't realize is that in many of these cases they are being settled for significant amounts of money um, that are treated in confidential fashion. And so what I'm saying is that with a program that you and I have just <clears throat> talked about and endorsed, uh, you would wind up saving money. Uh, so that's what should be done. Well, now, you and I just proved something perfectly, that there is a common ground on the political divide. Democrats and conservative Republicans like myself can agree on very many issues. So I don't understand why we have such a divide in our nation when the basic core of, of our community is what we agree on. Uh, yes, um, you're right. Well, <clears throat> um, as we know, there's a lot of there are a lot of problems in our society today, political, socio-political, um, and so on. And uh, it is a shame because we could accomplish so much if we could somehow come together in a <clears throat> more <clears throat> um, in a more organized and uh, calm manner and get rid of the extreme. Uh, people at the right and extreme people at the left uh, and uh, try to deal with things that are more uh, moderate and more acceptable. Now, you've got a very storied career and a, a lot of interesting things that has occurred to you in your lifetime. What actually motivated you to write this book at this time? I decided that I owed it to myself in a way um, to put things together um, about my own legal travails and trials and tribulations, and also to uh, hit the highlights of things that I've done. And uh, so uh, someone who had come to interview me for another matter suggested uh, that it turned out to be now my co-author, Jeff Seawalt, a very accomplished uh, <clears throat> um, uh, attorney, uh, writer, a writer, excuse me. And um, so we started a few years ago to meet and talk, and that's how it evolved. And I am so delighted that I've had the opportunity to do that and get this book out. Well, it is, it is. I suggest people do go out and get it. Now, you spend a lot of your book talking about the criminal prosecutions that were against you. And that's one thing that drives me crazy. The way that people now use our criminal justice system as a bludgeon against someone they see as a foe, an opponent, uh, an antagonist, someone that they don't like. It's so easy to be litigious. Uh, that That is absolutely right. And <clears throat> Americans are so naive, they think that these kinds of things would never happen, could not happen in our country. These are things you read about with the KGB in Russia, Tantan Makuti in Haiti, uh, totalitarian countries, um, dictatorships, and so on. And they don't realize how our criminal justice system has been uh, perverted, um, I'm not saying it happens frequently, but uh, whatever the percentage is, no matter how small, when you think of the hundreds of thousands of cases that there are, and you think of the power that district attorneys and and more so U.S. attorneys have, then you can see how easily it is to use that office uh, to <clears throat> do things 
of a personal political nature to get back at somebody. And that's exactly what happened to me on two different occasions. Well, you know, the worst part is is that their main purpose on these lawsuits is to actually bleed you dry, just drain your wallet and any reserves you have. So eventually you just fold and say, all right, fine, I give up, you win. Well, but that, that is the purpose. purpose. No. Well, the, the main purpose is to destroy you, your reputation. Um, they, they, they want to uh, destroy you financially too, but, but more just to destroy you in terms of your professional status and if you're involved politically, uh, your political status, present and possible uh, future aspirations. That's the main purpose of these things. But uh, yes, they set out. And, and the other purpose is uh, to <clears throat> acquire a scalp, you know, just like in the old days with some uh, tribes uh, that attacked people to acquire a, scal- a scalp and to <laughs> uh, show that this is what you did to somebody, uh, literally, figuratively speaking, to acquire a scalp. Well, I'm sorry. I, I have to make this observation because I'm looking at your picture and you lost your scalp a while ago. Yeah, well, that's my hair. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it has to take tremendous strength, that which you have ex- exhibited faith and strong family ties in order to go through what you've gone through. You know, how is your family held up? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm I was sorry. saying, how has your family held up throughout all these travails that you've had with these lawsuits and everything? Because it takes strong well, they were, ties and strength. Yeah, they were very heavy time and effort and money. Uh, fortunately, I uh, have a wonderful, strong wife. And uh, <clears throat> in the second of my trials, I already had some children who were grown and very accomplished and, and uh, extremely loyal and supportive and some wonderful friends. You need that. And then you have to have the courage and the perseverance yourself, and you have to have some financial wherewithal, too. The reason that U.S. attorneys have a 98 99% success rate is because um, their cases, um, um, you know, they don't cost them anything, and they have unlimited resources, and they can just spend <clears throat> anything at all with the federal government. They have unlimited budgets for any particular case that they undertake. In the meantime, someone, uh, you know, even... Uh, it doesn't have to be a pauper, but just uh, you know, average income. You can't. How do you deal with the U.S. government? Uh, how do you uh, work on that? You know, when you're not only just being a pathologist, you're also an attorney. Uh, you call it medical legal. Uh, one of the things I've always been a strong proponent of is tort reform. So that if a, a DA or some government attorney decides to go after a citizen and they don't win, that citizen should be able to turn around and recoup all their expenses from the government. Are you someone that would be favorable for something like that? Uh, Yes, well, that's uh, something to consider, certainly. That's right. Something to consider. (laughs) I mean, uh, they're using the taxpayer money to prosecute you, and the taxpayer doesn't get the money's worth. They should be answerable to the taxpayer and to the But they're not. U.S. attorneys are appointed actually by the president, uh, recommendations usually from the uh, U.S. senator of the uh, same party in that particular state. Um, And and those appointments are made by the private, actually by the president. Their power is unlimited, unlimited. District attorneys, while they do stand for election in most jurisdictions, still 
um, they can get away with a lot of things. And then in those media, they don't usually cover these things in a thorough, objective way, uh, dealing with the viewpoint, perspective of the person who has been wrongfully charged and so on. And that's how it happens. Well, the assumption is is that if you do a plea deal, you're automatically determined to be guilty in the eyes of the public. That's yeah, that's right. Even though we have we have the axiom innocent until proven guilty, the fact of the matter is, if you do an honest, in-depth survey, uh, you'll find that the overwhelming majority of people, including people who are decent and fair-minded, when someone is charged, and that is what makes the newspaper, uh, the radio, television announcements, and so on, then uh, they're already thinking that someone has done something wrong. Uh, that's the way it is. So there's business about innocent until proven guilty. Yes, uh, when you finally get into the courtroom, insofar as how people think about it and their attitude toward you in the community and so on, even among your friends and acquaintances, they feel automatically that you sure as hell did something wrong. Well, uh, my my baby sister happens to be an attorney. Uh, so, you know, it, it, we have a conversation and... Uh, she turns around. She said to me the other day, "I hate attorneys." <laughs> <laughs> so, there's got to be something there, you know. She goes, "These new ones coming up, they're so arrogant." <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they feel empowered, as if they know more than you, and you end up being the sitting duck. That's correct. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> um, they. Uh, that's the way they feel, and you have to deal with it. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, fortunately, I was able to do that. I had some great attorneys, and uh, I successfully um, <clears throat> accomplished what I needed to do, and that was to obtain complete exoneration and, uh, and then actually then backing even from newspapers and other major political figures when they came to know the truth, and that is what happened with me. Well, you also had your own private practice on the side where you were a consultant uh, on a lot of different cases. Yes, I, I have that. Yeah, you got yourself in trouble. But my question is, is, who doesn't make a personal phone call when they're at work? You know, name me a person, and that's basically what they went after you for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was shown um, with what they said um, on uh, facts, uh, some faxes and phone calls, I think it came out to be something like uh, $18 or, or $20 or something like that. Um, yeah, well, that's that's it, but that's that's what you need uh, top-notch attorneys to deal with. <laughs> so for less than 20 bucks, you had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend yourself. Make that, not ma- just uh, one, ma- but <clears throat> make, make, that, make that millions, not hundreds of thousands, millions. Man, what I could do with that money. <laughs> what we could do mm. with that money right now. Yes, yeah. You know, uh, now, I was reading about some of the cases, and we always hear about JFK. That's always the big one that everyone always talks about. Um, and they always go about the lone shooter. And yet you proved that was completely false. I was fascinated when I was reading it. Uh, I was a little kid when JFK was shot. Uh, so I grew up with that whole thing. Uh, um, but it was always fascinating uh, yeah. to find out what the truth yeah. And you came across things that they did not want the public to know. 
Yeah, the Warren Commission report is sheer, unadulterated nonsense. <clears throat> it has been established and proven uh, from a pathological, neuro neurological, neurosurgical, radiological, um, <clears throat> acoustics investigative studies that there were two shooters in Dealey Plaza that day, one from the back and one from the picket fence on the grassy knoll. No question about it. The single bullet theory um, is sheer nonsense, and that is the basis of the Warren Commission report's conclusion regarding a sole assassin. One bullet produced seven wounds in two men, Connolly, Kennedy and Connolly, broke two large bones in Governor Connolly, zigzagged in the midair up and down, right and left, and emerged after breaking two large bones completely intact, <clears throat> no indentation at all, the nose, the cone, the jacket of the bullet, and with a weight loss of only 1.5% of its original weight after having left pieces of itself in four anatomic locations of these two men. That is the Warren Commission report. Sheer, sheer, unadulterated nonsense. That, that, that was one heck of a magical bullet to go in 15 different yes. directions all Yeah, up. and that's why yeah, we, we, we labeled it, some of the other critics and I, a long time ago as the magic bullet. It's called the single bullet theory officially, and we have called it the magic bullet. <clears throat> well, have you gotten involved at all in the Jeffrey Epstein uh, episode? Yes, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, I've reviewed that and I've commented. I'm, I'm on, uh, I think there are two different um, <clears throat> um, TV programs um, of great length in which I am featured um, in expressing my views. I believe that Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. I do not believe that it was a suicide. No, I completely agree with you. Knowing how the New York City system works, as I said, this was, this was impossible to have occurred in the way they described it. You know, Having yes. been working through the system, mm. you know, it, it, if you know how they handle things, how their regulations are, it was just absolutely impossible. Yeah. And how then convenient you, it was that the camera, and the, the camera and the gel and the cell did not work, and the guards were so tired, overworked, that they fell asleep. I was supposed to be watching them all the time. How convenient. All those things happened at the same time to allow um, this to happen. Uh, un unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, and so also the cellmate suddenly was not there, and they normally put in a cellmate, someone that will keep an eye on him and alert the guards if anything was going mm -hmm. on. Yeah, what happened? Yeah. Cellmate. Tell yeah, it was it was a it was a setup, no question about it. When you think of the <clears throat> kinds of people who were involved with him, um, you can figure there's no way <clears throat> they were going to allow him to come into court and testify on that. <laughs> no way. Now, now a, a number of years ago, they came up with these TV programs, the crime scene uh, investigations. The CSI started off in Los Angeles yeah. and New York. And, yeah, started off and with Quincy, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Quincy MD, uh, which is loosely based, I believe, on you, isn't it? Um, well, uh, some people have thought that. I can't say that as a matter of my own personal knowledge. Uh, it's a nice compliment, but uh, suffice it to say it is based certainly um, on what a medical examiner has to deal with, what a forensic pathologist um, does and his her work, um, and then, of course, with some liberties that the world of fiction is permitted to take. But uh, it gives you an idea of what goes on in a coroner or medical examiner's office. What I deal with as a forensic pathologist and uh, as a medical legal consultant, um, and uh, I continue to do all that work um, today. After uh, since 1962, 
I've been doing medical legal consultations for attorneys all over the country, sometimes from countries around the world. I've testified in more than a couple dozen states, in more than a couple dozen federal courts. I've testified in six uh, foreign countries. Uh, and uh, and I get these consultations from attorneys in civil and criminal cases. That's what I do. And I touch upon uh, some of my um, famous, infamous, highly controversial uh, cases in in the book the uh, <clears throat> life and death of Sirowek memoirs of America's most controversial forensic pathologist that's the name of the book <laughs> that the publisher came up with first I thought it was kind of silly but <laughs> I like it now the life and deaths of Sirowek <laughs> memoirs of America's most controversial forensic pathologist and I touch upon these cases JFK <clears throat> RFK MLK and then on uh, Elvis Presley, Tammy Wynette, Chandra Levy, uh, Gene Harris, Waco Branch Davidian Fire, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown, uh, White House Counsel Vince Foster, uh, O.J. Simpson, John Benet Ramsey, Phil Spector, and on and on. So uh, I, uh, I I think that people would enjoy reading the book um, who are interested uh, in fine fascinating forensic science, a fascinating field, which indeed it is. Well, you've had your hands in a lot, in a lot. I've always been fascinated also with Secretary Brown because that was never, never fully covered by the press. The public has no idea what the heck was going on with that and why he had to die. Uh, there's so much information in the book, and it is fascinating. Matter of fact, when I read the title after your agent sent it to me, I had to do a double take. I went, all right, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy's not dead yet. <laughs> yeah, you wonder <laughs> what... Joe, what you're your old yeah. my mom. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, I, uh, I thank you for your comments, and I appreciate your giving me the opportunity to discuss uh, the book with you and to talk about uh, some of these problems in the criminal justice system, in law enforcement, and uh, in the overall field of forensic science. Um, and people will learn a lot and be, f and be quite fascinated by, <laughs> by what they read, uh, uh, as I have set forth, uh, having had the opportunity to become involved in these cases over the years. Oh, absolutely. And I know that you're big in the politics down in Pennsylvania, as you were at one point uh, the DNC chair over there. Um, I'm just curious what your take is with going on with the election right now, with the vote counting and the mail-in well, ballot. I think that uh, <clears throat> this is all utter nonsense. Uh, Biden won by about 8 million popular votes. Um, Republican jurisdictions in Georgia and elsewhere have made it clear uh, that uh, they have no reason at all uh, to believe there was anything of a fraudulent nature. Courts have acted upon this, uh, Supreme Courts and other courts and federal courts around the country. And I don't know why uh, Trump and some of his acolytes like Giuliani and Lindsey Graham continue to uh, utter this nonsense. It's not good for America, not good for American democracy. We've got to move on. And Trump can come back and run again in four years if he wants to. In the meantime, he should just uh, be quiet, uh, finish up, be a little bit graceful, although it's very hard for him to be gracious, and, uh, and do what he can to help Biden come in and get organized so that the country can back into a more tranquil state. That, that's, that's what I believe. Well, Dr. White, it has been a lot of fun speaking with you, and your book, again, can be found on Amazon, The Life and Death of Cyril White, uh, Memoirs of America's Most Controversial Forensic Pathologist. 
God bless you, sir, and thank you okay, for doing it. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity. Have a nice weekend. You and your listeners oh, and happy enjoy Hanukkah. the holidays. Okay. Thank you so much. Happy thank you. Time. Take care. Bye bye. To say that we don't give equal time to the Democrats <laughs> and Yanni's head. Yeah, I, I had to poke the bear. I had to poke the bear. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but it, 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 I, I have to admit, um, you can read, when you read the book, you... The book sounds interesting. You Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're talking. That's got to unmute you, Yanni. I'm sorry. I did it again. <laughs> you were telling me about when I talked to you about the book about Dr. White. No, um, uh, I had the impression that it was, uh, you know, all about him. And it is, but. It is. It's all about him. It is all about him. Yeah, but that's a lot. No, that's a lot of interesting things that he was saying. Mm-hmm. Until you poke him. I had to poke the bear. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a very interesting interview. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I'm gonna have to put up a little bit of something um, because I've got to call Dr. Hartman in, and this is where I miss um, Curtis because Curtis is the one that normally calls our guests into the show, and um, I don't have him with us. So uh, let's get, let's see, what do we have here? Um, uh, Here we go. We we get a little Dave Bray. Um, Yeah, how about this? Uh, No, I don't have any Christmas music keyed up. I think people get enough of that just going to Wally World. Uh, But this is Dave Ray, and let me get the play on this one, so that way I can call Dr. Hartman.
And we're back, and unfortunately, I cannot get through to our next guest. The phone is just ringing and ringing and ringing, and I don't got nothing. Anyway, uh, we're going to see what we got coming up here. And, of course, Yanni walks away, so I can't even talk to him. Oh, good Lord, guys. It's going to be one of those days again. <laughs> just go figure. Go figure. So I'm going to try to see what I can do with my little special phone here and see if I can get someone from their office to uh, to give me a shout back. I don't have... Good luck. Figures. Go figures. All right. I'm going to just try another thing here. Well, Yanni, it looks like I can't get our next guest in on the line. So it's you and me, buddy. Um, I don't know where he's at or what he's doing, but I don't have him. So you and I have to fill in for the next hour until he does call in. Um, you have sound. I just heard it coming through your, your headset. Go ahead. I can hear you. You can hear me. Okay. Now. Right. Yeah, you got me. You got me here. Yeah, anyway. Well, anyway, um, I read his, his new book. I read it in one sitting. It was very... Uh, very good, and I, I didn't want to put it down. Um, the only thing is he has these questions at, at the end. There's like three, write down what you think. Well, that you can't do while you're reading. But. No, no. Um, we were supposed to have Dr. Bruce Hartman with us, uh, but for some reason he's MIA. Um, let's see if I can try to send a message over. Uh, to him, but it's not as easy as you th- I hate this new phone. I, I really do. I got ever since the car accident I had, they gave me a, a completely different phone, and it just messes the heck up out of me. Yeah, I hate it with a passion. I really do. But we're gonna see what we can get here. Anyway, um, his new book out. If he does manage to call in. Um, is titled Spend a Year with Jesus, an Inspirational Jury, Jur- Journey of Finding Jesus and Faith. Um, and it is a, it's a great book. Um, it uh, it kind of like lets you sit and think about stuff. He'll give you a passage. He'll give you like a little explanation to the passage and then give you something to think about um, on top of it. Right. And then you go back later on and you look at what you wrote and say, well, what do I want to change about this? Yeah, well, that's the part that I didn't do was uh, go back. I said, I'll do that later. I'll go back and read the uh, that and write down what I was thinking. But um, anyway. Um, yeah, I'm sending a message. Just bear with me as I am sending a message over to Dr. Hartman's agent. Um letting him know that I tried calling him we had no answer and that we're live now um, so yeah tell me what else you think about with the, uh, the the book that you read from Dr. Hartman right, go ahead well the new one or uh, because I started reading um, um, Jesus and Company and that one I could not relate to because I'm not really 
up to anything that's corporate. So I stopped that, but I started reading the other one, which is, that one is great. That one I can probably sit down and read um, just the same as the the last one. All right. Well, I... uh, your faith has healed you. Yeah, which is also a great book too. That one. Also is a great book. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to put his stuff aside for now, and uh, I had some other stuff here. Um, one of the people we were going to be t- we're going to be talking to towards the end of the show um, is Jonathan Butcher, and right now he's doing an interview with. Uh, supposed to be doing an interview at three o'clock with One American Network, and then jumping off of that to come here. But he has a great story about critical race theory, the new intolerance and its grip on America. And you look at the Black Lives Matter and you look at Antifa and everything he writes about in his article is actually spot on dealing with that and how they're and I, I discussed this with uh, Dr. White um, uh, about, you know, how our nation is being divided by saying it's pitting this group against that group against this group against and it has to be identity politics to the nth. And we got to stop that. We got to start thinking as of ourselves as unhyphenated Americans. As it used to be. Mm-hmm. Well, when I grew up. Well, not not really. There's always been. Everyone has some sort of an identity. Growing up when you went to school, it says, "Well, I'm Italian American, or I'm Jewish American, or I'm." But th- there is pride in your heritage but you didn't wear it on your sleeve like a red badge of courage and that's the difference that we have now instead of being proud of your heritage and sharing it with others you know openly equally honestly uh you use it to bludgeon someone else over the head say you have no idea what it means to be growing up as blank so you know instead of Using it as a way of people understanding each other better, you use it as a wedge to drive people apart. And the more you drive them apart, the more you can control them politically and geographically. And that is what they're doing. It is an attempt to absolutely control us. You know, if the masks don't do it, then identity politics will. Comment? Johnny, you're supposed to speak. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree with what you said, but you keep saying they. Who's they? The left. Yeah. The left. I, the left. I wanted to identify. All right. Well, you know, while we're seeing if our guests will call in or not, um, let me go back to, and I'm not getting anything here. All right. Um, this week, um, a great man had passed away, and he was a legend, uh, Chuck Yeager. And he was a World War II fighter ace who broke the sound barrier in 1947. He passed away um, just uh, on Pearl Harbor Day. On Pearl Harbor Day, at around 9 o'clock at night, Pacific time, he died at the age of 97. And American Action News carried a short article on him, which really doesn't cover half of what this man was about. Um, but this was written, let me see if I can see who wrote this, it said, uh, staff. 
Uh, it doesn't say who the actual author of this article is, but it reads, Chuck Yeager, the World War II fighter ace who broke the sand barrier in 1947, has died at the age of 97. The future aviation pioneer enlisted in pilot training for the United States Army Air Forces weeks after America's abrupt entry into the Second World War. Jaeger's squadron arrived in Great Britain in 1943 as part of the 8th Air Force. He survived being shot down over Nazi-occupied France in one of his earlier raids before escaping to Allied lines with assistance from the local resistance. After persuading General Eisenhower to let him return to the sky, Jaeger went on to score 13 aerial victories, including five on a single mission. John Nicoletti, a close family friend, announced Yeager's passing. It came on the anniversary, the 79th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. On the Chuck Yeager Twitter feed, his wife posted from Victoria Yeager. It is with profound sorrow, I must tell you, that my life love, General Chuck Yeager, passed just before 9 p.m. Eastern Time. An incredible life well-lived, America's greatest pilot, and a legacy of strength, adventure, and patriotism will be forever remembered. And following his wartime service in Europe, Jaeger left an indelible mark on history by breaking the sound barrier as an Air Force test pilot. The New York Times' Richard Goldstein reports... His signal achievement came on October 14, 1947, when he climbed out of a B-29 bomber as it ascended over the Mojave Desert in California and entered the cockpit of an orange, bullet-shaped, rocket-powered experimental plane attached to the bomb bay. An Air Force captain at the time, he zoomed off in the plane, a Bell Aircraft X-1, at an altitude of 23,000 feet. And when he reached about 43,000 feet above the desert, history's first sonic boom reverberated across the floor of the dry lake beds. He had reached a speed of 700 miles an hour, breaking the sound barrier and dispelling the long-held fear that any plane flying at or above the speed of sound would be torn apart by shockwaves. After all the anticipation to achieve this moment, it really was a letdown. General Jaeger wrote in his best-selling memoir, Jaeger, 1985, with Leo Janos, there should have been a bump in the road, something to let you know that you had just punched a nice clean hole through the sonic barrier. The unknown was a poke through jello. Later on, I realized that this mission had to end in a letdown because the real barrier wasn't in the sky, but in our knowledge and experience of supersonic flight. Nonetheless, the exploit ranked alongside the Wright brothers, first Kitty Hawk, first flight in Kitty Hawk in 1903, Charles Lindbergh's solo flight to Paris in 1927 as epic events in history of aviation. In 1950, 
General Yeager's X-1 plane, which he christened Glamorous Glennis, honoring his wife, went on display at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. By the time he left the Air Force in 1975, General Yeager had commanded fighter squadrons in three wars. You think about what this man had achieved. He was born in 1923 in West Virginia, and he passed away in Los Angeles, California on Pearl Harbor Day. He was a brigadier general, and he fought in World War II, in Vietnam, and commanded troops in the Korean War. His awards include the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, the Army Distinguished Service Medal, two Silver Stars, two Legion of Merit, three Distinguished Flying Crosses, the Bronze Star Medal, the Purple Heart, and many others. What a man, what a legend. Believe it or not, he started his career as a private in the United States Army Air Forces and served as an aircraft mechanic. And then in 1942, he entered pilot training and was promoted to the rank of flight officer. And then he went on from there, becoming a P-51 fighter pilot on the Western Front, and he was credited with shooting down 11.5, now 11.5, you shoot half an aircraft, <laughs> enemy aircraft. The half credit is from a second pilot assisting him in a single shoot down. All right. And after the war, he became a test pilot. Uh, he included uh, aircraft for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Uh, he also became the first human to officially break the sound barrier. Um he later commanded fighter squadrons and wings in Germany, as well as in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Um, he was promoted to Brigadier General in 1969, retiring on March 1st, 1975. He served active duty through three wars and a f- flying career that spanned more than 30 years. He also took part in many parts of the world, including the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. He flew more than 360 different types of aircraft. Wow. Wow. Some people can't fly more than one. Like me. Oh, man. And, you know, and in post-retirement, he wasn't, you know, quiet uh, he he um he stayed active even in retirement um following assignments in germany and pakistan he retired um he made a cameo appearance in the movie the right stuff he played fred a bartender at poncho's place was most appropriate as jaeger said if all the hours were ever totaled i reckon i spent more time at her place than in a cockpit over the years <laughs> His own role in the movie was played by Sam Shepard. Uh, for several years in the 1980s, he was connected to General Motors, publicizing AC Delco, the company's automotive parts division. In 86, he was invited to drive the Chevy Corvette pace car for the 70th running of the Indy 500. In 88, he was again invited to drive the pace car, this time at the wheel of an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. 
In 86, President Reagan appointed Yeager to the Rogers Commission that investigated the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Now, during this time, he also served as a technical advisor to three electronic arts flight simulator video games. The games included Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer, Chuck Yeager's Advanced Flight Trainer 2.0, and Chuck Yeager's Air Combat. The game manuals featured quotes and anecdotes from Yeager as well as it was well received by players. Uh, the missions featured several of Jaeger's accomplishments and let players attempt to top his records. Jaeger's advanced flight trainer was Electronic Arts' top-selling game for 1987. And in 2009, he participated in the documentary The Legend of Pancho Barnes and the Happy Bottom Riding Club. A profile of his friend Pancho Barnes. The documentary was screened at film festivals, aired on public television in the U.S., and also won an Emmy. And then in 97, on the 50th anniversary of this historic flight, he flew a new glamorous Glenner III, an F-15D Eagle, past Mach 1. The chase plane for the flight was an F-16 Fighting Falcon piloted by Bob Hoover, a longtime test fighter and acrobatic pilot who had been Jaeger's wingman for the first supersonic flight. At the end of his speech to the crowd in 97, Jaeger concluded, all that I am, I owe to the Air Force. Later that month, he was the recipient of the Tony Yanis Award for his achievements. On October 14, 2012, on the 65th anniversary of Breaking the Sound Barrier, he did it again at the age of 89, flying as co-pilot in a McDonnell Douglas F-15 Eagle piloted by Captain David Vincent out of Nellis Air Force Base. Wow. The man, the legend. No kidding. What a guy. Yep, the man, the legend. So rest in peace, Brigadier General Yeager. You will be missed, and you are an inspiration to a nation. So, that's an oorah to Chuck Yeager. Anyway, back in the news. Oh, the Bidens, better and better. Not only do we have Hunter Biden under a tax investigation, which apparently has been going on for several years. I think it dates back to 2018 or further. So there's a huge investigation on Hunter Biden's taxes. But now James Biden is under the microscope, too. Biden, Biden, where's the Biden? Where's the third one? (laughs) Oh, you just cannot make this up. Mm. Uh, This was up in American Defense News that it appears that despite a politically motivated big media blackout on the important story, big tech censorship and a coordinated Democratic-led disinformation campaign trying to blame it all on Russia, Hunter Biden's shady business deals with China, Russia, Ukraine, et al. are, in fact, real. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Oh, 
break. You heard it here. I said it months ago. I said it months ago. The whole point was to make Camilla Harris the first female black yeah, president. They had the person of the year on, I think it's New Week magazine, whatever. Uh, the person of the year, both of them, right? Picture. Mm-hmm. Her the type size, the point size on his name. It was smaller, smaller than, than Camilla Harris. Mm-hmm. I say he's not going to last more than six months, if that, and then she's going to step in and become president. That's if, if, still a huge if. Now, remember, with Bush v. Gore, it that went on for more than 37 days. No one said Gore did not have the right to pursue legal action to get the election certified in his favor. No one ever ever told the man he can't do it. Yet, yet, we have the hypocrisy we see where, oh no, he should just quietly walk away. He should, Trump should just be a gentleman about it and walk away. That's not what our, our democratically elected republic is about. That is not what the Constitution is about. It gives us the avenue and access in which to have legal Elections, elections that are open and honest, which we're finding that more and more evidence is showing up that this election has not been fully legal and honest. So now you have 17 states joining in with Texas uh, and presenting a case to the Supreme Court. And as of yesterday, um, Senator Ted Cruz said, I will argue before the Supreme Court because you got to remember Ted Cruz has argued multiple cases before the Supreme Court. It's not someone that you can take someone who's never been there before and have them argue this case. You need someone who is experienced in knowing how exactly to present it to the justices. So it is a clear, cognizant argument before them. And Ted Cruz, I believe, is the right man for the job. So we're going to see what happens. Let it legally play out. We allowed Gore to legally play it out. We didn't stop him. So why is there this huge push to stop Trump from exercising his legal rights? That was only about a hanging chad, whatever that is. <laughs> Who made that word up? I don't know. I don't know. Punched the hole. Yeah, it, it was funny because um, no sooner did Texas you know, put out their their brief uh, for argument before the Supreme Court, uh, emails, chain emails started floating all over the Internet. And uh, one of them reached me the day after Texas filed their lawsuit. And it was urging us to swamp our state attorney general, Alan Wilson, here in South Carolina with emails to beg him to join on. And I had to turn around and send back to my friends, uh, guys, he already did that. You don't need to swamp him. He's already done it. If anything, our Attorney General Alan Wilson here in the great state of South Carolina was on top of it like a fly on crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess. So, as a matter of fact, I, I meant to call his office yesterday to see if he can come on the show next Friday. And just a heads up to let people out there know that um, 
after the 18th, we're going to take a two-week break because the show falls on exactly Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So I know you guys are going to be doing a lot of other stuff. And the last thing you want to do is sit down to listen to boring old me uh, yammer away. Um, but I'll be taking off those two Fridays. So I'll have something up, but it will not be live. Uh, just to let you know. So, you know, enjoy your holiday. Now, I'm going to. I'm going to sit back and enjoy the holiday. We'll probably go down to uh, Georgia to my sister's house uh, and pig out. And some good Italian food. That's if she knows how to make it. <laughs> she just walked past. <laughs> I, I, I got to say, you know, God bless my sister. She, she's an angel. She really is. So she drives up. And it's about an hour ride, just one way. So she drives up one day a week to you know help take care of my mom and give me a little bit of rest so I can do the show. So I got I get to bust her chops now and then. Decorated your Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. Anyway, uh, that's what's going on right now. Um, so we were talking about Biden and the lawsuits, and now James uh, Biden also is under the uh, the microscope and under investigation. And again, these are investigations that had been ongoing. They're only now, just now, coming to light. You know, if, if these things had been exposed by lamestream media originally, when they first started the investigation, say two or three years ago, do you think the people that voted for Biden would have still voted for him? I don't think so. There would have been, as people claim, eight million less voters. They still would have been. It's been said that um, the folks that were actually voting for him were really voting for Kamala. Uh, Kamala Harris? Yeah. Which which I I honestly believe that's the truth. She couldn't get, she couldn't win the primary. People just don't like her. She's not a likable person, period. So the only way they can get her into the White House is to cheat the ballots and say, oh, we're, we're not voting for Kamala Harris. We're actually voting, voting for Joe Biden. So let's stuff the ballot boxes. Let's, you, let's falsify these and change the votes in the machines at the same time. Can you imagine either one of them sitting down with other world leaders? Can you picture that? I swear Putin would have to run to the bathroom laughing so hard. He'd be peeing in his pants laughing so hard if he had to deal with either one of them. I mean, any world leader. It's a joke. No, and and what happens? We've, We've got places like the state of New York that just released. Oh, the article did not print out. Son of a bee. Son of a bee. The article did not print yet, but um, Osama bin Laden's spokesman, his main man to talk to, uh, who's also responsible for two bombings on American embassies in 1998. Not spokesman, henchman. But he was listed as a spokesman, who for the last 60 years has spent 21 of them in prison guilty of being a terrorist against Americans, killing hundreds of people in his terrorist acts, being directly responsible for these bombings. He gets released from prison. Why? 
not because good behavior, not because he saw the light and became a Christian, not because of uh, he served his full sentence and is now being paroled per the law. He gets released from prison because the MF is too fat. You get this? His obesity means he could be subject to contracting the COVID virus. So they're releasing his big butt to the American, to the public. They're releasing him out where he can wreak havoc on the world once again. Do you think he's repented? No. Now, how can you get yourself to be so obese that you can barely fit into the through the doors, the door leading to your cell? You're that fat. How do you get that fat in prison? I mean, I thought they they had crap food. So how are they getting fat? Starch. That's what they feed you. Oh man. He's just a prisoner. Yeah, just it, it just blows my mind. And of course, he's being released out of a New York prison. So it goes to show how. Talk about overcrowding. <laughs> <laughs> you overcrowd your own cell with yourself because you're that fat. If you saw the pictures, I don't have the picture to no, put up. Say, but... All you got to do is watch Monk and that. Oh, Dale the Whale. Yeah. If anyone watched the TV show Monk, Monk's nemesis on there. Yeah. Um, uh, What's the actor's name? Uh, I'm going to say Alan. Oh, good Lord. His father was actor yeah. too. Uh, it, Alan Arkin, yes, Alan Arkin uh, played Dale the Whale on the TV show Monk. Yeah, exactly. that's Dale the Whale. Oh, my God. He just doesn't have that luxury. So. Abdel Abu- Abdul, whatever his last name is, Dale the Whale. Oh, my gosh. He got it. He got it. Dale the Whale. <laughs> but he got freed. Because he's too fat. I mean, he is so huge, he would not even fit in my Archie Bunker chair. That I, he would need the love seat. That's how fat he is. He, he, he takes off up almost an entire couch. How would they get him in the squad car to get him out of there? I don't know. I don't know. All right. All right. It looks like. All right. It looks like later on, Jonathan Butcher is not going to be joining us, but Hans von Spakovsky will be. Good, good, good. That's right. That's right. We'll we'll, we'll change that. Don't worry about that. This is from the Heritage Foundation. And this guy, Tom, over there is such a great guy. Uh, He felt bad. Um, So he will be with us at 3.30. So um, I don't know what happened to Dr. Hartman. We did try calling him. Um, I did send a missive to his agent, and we got ourselves a no-show, so I apologize for that, because I really did want to talk to him. He's always so much fun to talk about, especially since we're still seeing attacks on our faith. You're still finding in places like New Jersey, California, New York, um, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, um, where you're, you're told... You can't have more than 10 people attend a service. 
Now, you've got a building that could easily hold, say, our church holds, what, about 600? But you're only allowed to let 10 people in. Now, that's an attack on faith. You are violating the First Amendment right to exercise our faith. What they are doing is prohibiting the free expression thereof, a direct violation of the First Amendment. By telling us, oh, but no, 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 this is an emergency. It's due to health concerns and health issues. Well, don't you think that we as adults, not adults, but adults, um, are responsible enough to know distancing, washing your hands, things like that? But no, 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 no. Government has to know more than you. They have to know better than you. You're too stupid to take care of yourself, so we need to take care of you. Am I making sense here, Yanni? Yeah. Speak into the mic. Look in California. That poor woman that has outdoor dining, but NBC has their tent set up where they can do it, but across the street, she can't do it, her restaurant. This woman we're talking about in California, I I, I forgot what her name is, but it's all over uh, Newsmax. So just go to Newsmax and you'll see the article up there. Um, She spent $80,000. $80,000. She had to take a loan out to pay $80,000 to create an outdoor dining experience. Really nicely done. Very nicely done. To keep her restaurant open, to keep her employees employed, because she she didn't want to lay anyone off. She wanted to keep them working. And she says, well, you know, if I can keep the restaurant going and business as usual, I can afford the loan. Gavin Newsom, in all of his infinite wisdom, I know better than thee. The rules are for thee, but not for me, Gavin Newsom, ordered her shut. Even though she has outdoor dining, ordered her shut closed. And the very day he does that, he grants a permit to NBC for a TV show to open up this outdoor catering facility for their actors and crew directly next to her restaurant within 50 feet of what she just did. 50 feet of the dining she set up, but it's okay if you're 50 feet over here and you're NBC, you're perfectly fine. But if you are a small business owner, you own a restaurant, you just spent $80,000 complying with what we required you to do, you can't open up anyway, even though you followed the rules. Screw you. And that's what he just basically did. He gave her the middle finger big time. And I think there should be attorneys all over this nation hopping on this woman, offering them their services to sue the crap out of the state of California, specifically naming Governor Gavin Newsom. I'd be like a fly on crap. All right. That's where you reply, Yanni. Nicely put. Someone posts up here in the chat room. Just remind Yanni to say, yes, dear. Yes, dear. Who said that? (laughs) Yes, dear. Oh, man. 
But yeah, it's it's sad that we see such hypocrisy, and never in my life have I seen it so blatant as we now see it being exposed in this pandemic. It is it's if the chickens have come home to roost. But yeah, it it is so blatant the hypocrisy, and it's not even as if they're trying to hide it. Not at all. You know, you got that one, um, what was it? Was it the, a mayor from New Mexico has everyone on lockdown, and then he flies down to Mexico for his daughter's wedding. Mm-hmm. No one's masked. No one's safe distance. But rules for thee and not for me. New Jersey, New York, what's the They're all the same. Uh, absolutely astonishing. Astonishing. Limit how many people could come over your house on Christmas. It was the um, mayor of L.A. that said that he was upset because they couldn't police inside people's homes. He felt that you, as a family unit, as a domestic couple, you are too stupid even in your own homes that government has to go into your home and determine whether or not you have too many people in your house. And if you are in your own home, you may be self-quarantining like you and I do with my mom, that if we self-quarantine, we avoid any unnecessary contact if we can. So that way we can walk freely in our own homes without having to be messed up. But we're too stupid so they want to send someone into our home and criminally penalize us. We are not doing what they dictate and mandate mandate us to be. Now, remember back to when they were first discussing Obamacare before it got passed. And you remember me sitting there in the living room, pouring over these hundreds of pages of the Senate bill and the House bill. And if people go to my blog, which is linked onto my homepage, uh, southern-sense.com, you know, just put a hyphen in the middle, southern sense with a dash in the middle, uh, dot com, you can read the blog. But you've got to go back to October of 2000, August through October, possibly even November of 2009. And I wrote extensively tearing apart Obozocare. And in that original bill, and as it passed, after it was married together, and then finally passed under Obozo, I mean Obama. Um, it stated in there that the government can send into your home to examine your refrigerator, your freezer, your cabinets, and determine whether or not you have stocked food and supplies in there they deem appropriate. So if you're someone like me, that after I make bacon, I save the drippings because it's good to make a roux for, you know, the, the basis of any sort of a gravy or a cream sauce. I like to use, instead of butter, which is just as fattening as bacon fat, but more tasty, um, I like to use a little of that to make my sauces. But if they saw bacon fat in my refrigerator, oh, shame on me. They'll probably take me out in handcuffs. How dare you? And what about, I eat bacon fat sandwiches. I'm pumpernickel, dark pumpernickel with 
bacon fat and salt. <laughs> so if you, if you don't stock your refrigerator with low-fat dietary rabbit food and all the tasteless, disgusting things that they feel is healthy for you, if you've got regular whole milk and not soy milk, oh, my goodness. Didn't Michelle have something about a she had garden thing going on over there when she was, yes. what was that stupidity? She had, she had a, a, a vegetable garden at the White House, uh, which she did not physically garden. Someone did it for her. And then she sat and lectured everyone about healthy eating and controlling school meals. Had that work out? Not too good. (laughs) What was happening to the kids at school lunches? They finally went back. A lot of the schools, I know they have done in my school district, back to the old way of doing things. Because the kids, yeah, you go through the lunch line, pick up your meal, and they would throw it out. They would look at it and go, I don't want to eat this crap. Where's my pizza? Where's my hamburger? Where's my hot dog? I'll eat that. So the kids were not even eating. And how are you going to teach kids that have lost concentration, have lost energy, because they did not eat their meal? So they can't concentrate. They, they get, become distracted because they're hungry. So, you know, we're paying for all this food that all they did was come off the lunch line, straight to the garbage can, and throw it out. That's the Michelle Obama school lunch program. This is what Obamacare does to our households. And now, with this pandemic, watch them try to walk into our homes, and not only will they penalize you, for not washing your hands enough or wearing a mask in your own home, they'll start poking through your cabinets. And I'm getting in this house. We live in South Carolina. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> we have stand your ground. <laughs> we don't care how you did it up north. No, we don't care how you did it up north. I mean, and I keep on reminding my sister every chance I can, aren't you glad you left New York? And she goes, yes. <laughs> oh, man. Now, one of the reasons why I, I brought up the bit with the, the pandemic and uh, they're trying to dictate to what we do in our homes, especially when it comes with food, um, there was an article. Um, this was in the Tennessee Star. Uh, and this article by Bethany Blankley uh, goes on about food insecurity, saying the title of it is Food Insecurity Doubles in U.S. During Coronavirus Shutdowns. All right, I got to sit back. My back is starting to hurt. All right, and she writes, as 2020 winds down, roughly 23% of households in the U.S. are struggling with food insecurity, a number that has doubled since last year. Experts project over 50 million Americans will be food insecure. See, this is the new catchword. This is going to be the new catchword. Food insecure. Um, In 2020, including roughly 17 million children. Craig Gunderson, a Department of Agricultural and Consumer 
economics professor at the University of Illinois states, in 2019, roughly 13.7 million U.S. families, 10.5% of households, experienced, quote, food insecurity, unquote, at some point, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Since state-mandated shutdowns began in most states in mid-March, the number of U.S. families experiencing food insecurity has roughly doubled, a number which coincides with high unemployment. Now, excuse me, if you lock down the nation and you force businesses to shut down, doy, people lose jobs. They lose jobs. They have no income. They have no income. Well, then they're going to have to cut their budget back somewhere, whether it's rent, uh, whether it's utilities, whether it's food, whether it's medication. These government shutdowns have caused massive unemployment. And if you notice, they're all in blue states, not the red states, the blue states, New York, California, Michigan, New Jersey, and the list goes on. Anyway, so now we've got the food insecurity. Now, is this what food stamps is precisely for? So my question is, is if they have this many people that they claim are unemployed, so you've got unemployment insurance, you've got food stamps, you've got Section 8 housing, you also have a free Obama phone, and then you have also, if you're unemployed and in the poverty level, you Medicaid. So government already offers all these programs. So, you know, if, if it's really that bad, why don't these people, instead of talking about food insecurity, turn around and work with these programs to help find out who needs the services and help them obtain them? But no, no, no. They've got a fear monger. They have to fear monger to make everyone even more frightened. He goes on to write, uh, households that have food security are those defined as those who have access at all times to enough food for an active, healthy life for all household members. Again, there are programs out there. They do exist out there. So I don't understand why they're not being utilized. Now, I've got a funny feeling. Let me just double check something here. Bear with me as I knock things all over the place. All right, I do see some callers in the studio, but um, oh yes, okay, fine. We got our next guest calling in early, so let me just juggle and shuffle some papers around. And where'd my mouse go? All right, and yes, this is. Let's welcome onto the show, and thankfully called in a little bit early because our last guest uh, disappeared. Uh, Neil, I'm going to probably pronounce your name wrong. Alstein? That's right, Alston. 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 Welcome aboard. Um, you have a very, very interesting number of websites. Um, you were originally with Google, and you broke off and now do your own stick. Uh, you have something now, a new app out called Abide Meditation, which is a project of the Carpenter's Code. Um, tell us about the Carpenter's Code and uh, what it is that you're attempting to achieve. 
know um, it's a, what we're trying to do is to help people engage with the Bible and live better lives. That, as you know, there's all this media out there and other things that are driving people towards uh, just negative, bad, unhelpful things. And we're trying to help draw people into a place where they're living a better life, having better emotional health, sleeping better, using scripture. And we've seen great success with it, helping people fall asleep, helping people through anxiety, depression, stress, post-traumatic stress, all sorts of great things. Uh, so that's what we're trying to accomplish. You know, um, I have a friend of mine, Dan Perkins, who does something very similar, but he does it, he calls it Songs and Stories for Soldiers, where he does uh, motivational books, uh, songs and stuff on iPods and gives it out to soldiers. And he's found tremendous strides being made with our veterans that may be suffering from PTSD mm, or mm, brain injury. So I thought of him when I was reading this, and he's also a very strong mm. faith-based individual. Um, we're, we're seeing with the rise of technology, more individuals doing something like you because it's hard to reach people individually, especially with this pandemic going on. So this is a whole new way to find and reach out and spread faith. That's right. And we actually have millions of people, including soldiers and veterans. And I've actually talked with the head of the chaplaincy and we've been finding ways this out to, to veterans and soldiers because it scales, right? Like you can, it's basically like on-demand counseling using scripture to have a friend next to you. And one of the things that I love, one of our users described it as, basically like having a friend sit beside you and tell you the encouraging words from scripture and, you know, help you get through your struggles and your anxieties. And we can do that. My background was at Google. Um, We learned how to do that in our whole team at these great tech companies, but now we're now trying to use it to bring people the Bible to help them with those problems in their daily life. And it's beautiful for like soldiers, like you said, and veterans in particular just go through, so much. And, you know, to be able to support them in this kind of a way is, is just, it, it warms my heart. You know, my dad's a veteran of the uh, Vietnam War. So that's a very close, um, very close subject for me. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I'd like to see this also go out to law enforcement agencies because of mm. uh, the climate we have right now. That is one of the most difficult jobs I can actually imagine. And I, I am just, I, I, I luckily retired when I did. I cannot re- even imagine putting that uniform on one more time to go out there in today's environment. And I mean, it was bad enough oh, when I yeah. did it back in the 80s and 90s, but trying to do it today, I, if anything, these men and women out there need help. Oh, for sure. No, that's actually what one of my uh, best friends who was in my wedding is a um, police officer in North Carolina. And the stories he tells me about the stress he's under from trying to serve in that role is just mind blowing to me. And I completely agree with you that for them to be able, I think one of the things that's beautiful for, for police officers too, is, you know, they're under so much scrutiny. He's like, I can barely even share anything with anyone because I'm afraid that I'm going to get criticized for it. And so to be able to come in and get this kind of resource, without even having to like walk into a counselor's office is great. And not, I'm not suggesting they shouldn't, but it, it, it gives them the ability to do it in their routine daily life without being criticized and without additional stress of, you know, like um, of, of, of other things. So it love perceptions, you know, all the weird things that are out there. So 
Yeah, absolutely. No, for first responders, for police officers, um, for military, for anybody who's under a stressful environment. One of the other actually areas where we have a lot of people are doctors. Um, you're talking about like, you know, medical first responders who are out there in the emergency room. Um, it was just recently talking with a woman who's, uh, you know, like full time in um, the emergency room. And she uses us to wind down and fall asleep because she comes off of treating COVID patients. And she's like, I've only got eight hours to sleep. And I've literally been seeing people die. And for me to be able, for her to be able to sort of wind down and remember that God is faithful, that God is there, that she can trust the Lord's promises and then fall asleep. So, what, you know, I'm, I'm with you on the police officer front, too, is that it's incredibly helpful. And I'm just so, you know, honored to be able to, to help the millions of people every month who are using our app and using our content on YouTube to, to fall asleep and to, to deal with those stresses. Well, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons why, not only because I was a cop, uh, but there is a stigmatism mm. so that if you are under stress as a, as a law enforcement officer and you mm. do seek out counseling, there is a stigmatism that goes with that individual that can actually harm your career uh, where you may be denied a promotion because they think you may be mentally unstable. Uh, you may mm. get ridiculed from other members within your command. So I, I think something like this, offering it to law enforcement agencies as an alternative um, I think would be a marvelous thing. I, I completely agree with you. And it's something that we're out um, working with um, a lot of organizations and agencies like that in order to distribute it. And, and if anyone needs help, financial help too, we just make it free to anybody who, if you, if you can't afford the subscription because we want to be a resource and a help. I mean, I, my heart goes out to the officers you're talking about because, you know, uh, it is an incredibly stressful job. <laughs> like, it's an incredibly stressful job. And then to think that you could be stigmatized for, you know, needing the support for when you're dealing with for incredibly hard stressful situations. Yeah, like that, because, like, you, you almost want them to have extra support. You want to say, well, of course you're going to be stressed out. Like, your job is really hard, you know. Um, so I, I I love being able to be there for people like that. And we have honestly, a lot of people who are in those circumstances and situations. And, you know, another one that we hear a lot of, too, which is really fascinating, are people who are public figures um, who have, for whatever reason, because they're criticized in the industry uh, for speaking out about their faith or for looking to participate in their faith, um, you know, and we're able to support them as well in, in, in different ways. So, yeah, I agree with you that we should and I wish we just had that spirit of welcoming across our country. You know, I mean, you, I know you're big on the First Amendment and the right to be able to speak out and to, to, to share and to commune. It's like, you know, to not be able to even express, it's almost like a First Amendment problem, right? If you're a police officer, you can't say, I have issues with, it's a stress. And you're going to be, you know, criticized in your profession for that. That, that just seems completely, I don't know, somehow backwards to me but you know that's um I'm, I'm i'm with you on that and i think that it's uh it's something that if we can offer help to those people who are helping us we should walk alongside this together you know we're hand in hand trying to make this country a more like healthy and supportive and protected place so i'm 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 with you on that 
Now, um, the app is called Abide, and people can just go to the Google Play Store or anywhere else where they buy their apps, uh, download their apps, and go to Abide Meditation, and they can download it. Now, you offer it for free for seven days, correct? And then after that, That's right. they get choose to a subscription or not? That's right. It's free for seven days, and then you can choose to subscribe. It's $39 a year. Um, and we have scholarships for people who need them. Um, and uh, it's got topical content in there, which is extremely popular, where you can just come in and say, I need help with anxiety, and we give you the top personalized content for you or for stress, emotions really big, sleep really big, and lots of um, – we have a library of thousands of different audio um, meditations and stories and prayers and you can choose how long you want to do it for whether it's a minute or two up to an hour and a half or longer and uh, we we try to tailor it and personalize it to you and we have tons of coaches voices world-class talent I mean part of what has been so delightful for me is working with some of the best um, broadcasters and voices and writers in the whole world like literally, we have some of the best in the whole world to be able to create this uh, content so that it's helpful. Um, we've got background music, um, scenes that you can go into. It's extremely relaxing and comforting. Um, and it's something that if you just need to wind down, and, and, and we all do, uh, this is extremely effective for that. It's on the App Store and Google Play, like you said. And um, we've had many millions of downloads and, you know, millions of monthly users and uh, this, it's just a joy, it's a joy to be part of something where every day we're getting testimonies of how people's lives are being changed spiritually, emotionally, uh, mentally, in sleep. And it's like, wow, it's, it's, it's very special. Well, right now you're in the middle of a giveaway, seven days of Christmas giveaway. Mm-hmm. And if people do download the app, they could be entered to win a one-year subscription. You're giving away seven of these to people that do download. And as you said, you've had over a million downloads on this. And I was surprised in such a short time. That's right. That's right. And, and welcome people to join in on the seven day challenge, um, download it and uh, you'll be subscribed into that. And you can ping our uh, support at abide.co in order to, if you need additional information, just want to make sure that you're registered right and everything else. And we're giving away, like, we got a free Christmas giveaway because we want people to enjoy it and, and, and be part of it. And we've been doing this giveaway with um, Upward, which is a great, uh, as well, Christian um, dating site for being able to connect with other believers for those people who are single and seeking a companion. So that's been a fun partnership. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's a great season to be able to, to support people. And, you know, the other thing about Christmas, too, is Christmas is a season where a lot of people have different perspectives on it. And, and it, some people are very joyful. Some people are lonely and grieving because they come into Christmas and maybe the family has changed. Maybe somebody's passed away. Maybe they've uh, gone through a divorce or separation or, you know, and a lot of things. And so Christmas is also a really important time to be able to, to, to process what's going on in your life and see how Christ is breaking in and bringing light, even in the midst of, of those, you know, the, the reality of what we go through in life. So yeah, we've got this giveaway, very, 
very fun and exciting to, to see uh, the new audience come in. And 2020 has just been incredible for us. And I say this as, a, as sort of a Christmas wish for everyone is life is hard. COVID has been hard. All of this just, I don't know, economic challenges and everything has been really hard in 2020. And we have just seen people getting such a massive amount of help. Our usage has skyrocketed in this season. And I want to invite you this Christmas to say, there is hope. There is encouragement in the Lord. There is, you know, an uplifting path that you can have. And, and this is one way, one tool, one resource that can be great for giving you a more joyful Christmas season and experiencing refreshing in that joy of Christ, right, which we need to keep doing. Um, so I, I hope that people will be able to receive that and enjoy that. Oh, absolutely. And you concentrate on uh, top mediation topics such as forgiveness and healing, of of thankfulness, of hope, of purpose building, and a relationship with Christ. So they can go in and choose from different topics what they want to focus on. What is it they're feeling at that moment? Is it, do they need someone to encourage them, to give them hope? Um, do they need something that will tell them that they're not alone, that there is a purpose to their life? Mm. And, and you can tailor it to what that person's need is at that moment. Absolutely. That's one of the powers of technology is that we've got these voices who are very um, connected with the Lord to bring to you. But it's going to be about what you're going through. So it personalizes to you. I mean, if you're dealing with loneliness, depression, grief, if you're um, a woman, you can come in and get content specifically made for, you know, women and women's issues and monthly issues and, you know, um, singleness and lots of things like that. Uh, if you're a parent and you have kids and you're, uh, you either want your kids to be ministered to and fall asleep, a lot of parents have trouble getting their kids to fall asleep and we have content for that. Um, so there's like an incredible range of topics and then we personalize it. So the app actually evolves as you use it and you're like, I like this, I like this. We give you more of it and suggest more of it and we help you discover ways that you that are maybe unexpected where you're like, I wasn't knowing that this kind of that these scriptures were relevant or that the Bible spoke to this issue in these ways, uh, or that I could pray these ways and be encouraged ways, or that, you know, and to hear encouraging stories along that. Uh, so that's been really fun because everybody's story is different, right? Everyone's dealing with a different set of issues and to be able to customize that for each person coming in so that it's helpful for what you need is part of the power of technology. And that's what we try to do. So we have over 25 different topics and that's absolutely one of our most used things. It's honestly, it blows my mind, but it's, it's um, quick help. People come in and they just tap on the issue they're having. And again, we list those issues out by, what you've been giving us feedback on you want. And that is just hugely engaged where people will come in and they'll tap on and they'll say, help me with this issue, you know? And, um, and we just autoplay the best content that we think you're going to want. And it works. I mean, people are just delighted and overwhelmed by the, you know, the, the ability for us to do that, which is really neat. And that's part of the cool thing of technology. I kind of kind of geek out because I'm a former Google guy, but for us to be able to take a library of really powerful biblical content and make it relevant for you, because the Bible is relevant for you right now, but can we help you get that content, right? Can we help you see that? And that's, that's what excites me is us being able to do that across all these topics. So very fun and, uh, 
been a great it's been a great journey. Well, you know, the holiday season is always a difficult time for a lot of people, mm. and this pandemic has just acerbated the situation uh, because I believe it's like forty two percent of Christian singles say that they feel more anxious about being sing- single during these holidays. Now, you've also taken this app and had uh, um, partnered up with um, Upward Christian and the Match Group. You know, people know Match.com for the dating service. So they don't have to feel alone, that maybe there is someone else out there that they can share their holiday with. That's right. We have a, and we have a singleness guide for women that's extremely popular on our app to be able to help you know you don't have to be alone. And also at the same, you know, and, and deal with those feelings uh, as you're going through that. So that's why I think partnering with Upward and Match.com has been so fun is because we're, we're offering the emotional support to deal with the fact that a lot of people are single and also give them opportunities to explore relationships that may work into, you know, a marriage. And that's, that's exciting. So I love being able to, to, to work alongside ministry like Upward uh, in, and with Match, with an incredible product and a great community, uh, so that we can offer a holistic solution. It's, super, yeah, super fun. In the holidays, like you said, is, you know, make sure to take care of yourself so that you can help others and, and uplift others. It's a season of giving, but I think it's also, which is huge, but it's also a good season to receive so that you can be refilled and you can give. And that's something that we kind of backstop and, and are able to support for people in this season. Well, you know, there's, there's a whole big, huge hole in a lot of people's hearts. I mean, um, mm. my church, we have not been able to go since this broke out because um, I've got – there's three of us in the household. All three of us are handicapped. So they don't, if you've got anything wrong with you, they don't want you showing up. Or they, they want you to make a reservation to attend a service. And that just rankles me. But what you wow. offer here is if you've, got, if you've got that little bit of a hole or you've got that huge hole, you can sit down quietly wherever you want to go. Sit out in your car by yourself and open up this app and just get some comfort. That's right. That's right. And it's like, it's like in your pocket, right? Is it's with you all the time. And that is um, something that is incredibly beautiful. I love you said in the car too, because actually a lot of people listen to us in the car um, and, you know, whether commuting or going to places or stress because they're in traffic. Uh, and it's, it's right there with you as a comfort. Another time when that comfort is really huge for a lot of people is at night. I mean, there's a lot of people who experience stress and darkness and even spiritual attack at night and to know that the Lord is with you in the darkest hour. God does not sleep or slumber says in scripture. And, you know, you look at the Psalms, which actually one of our biggest sleep things is the Psalms is, is where, um, you know, David woke up to the watches of the night and through the watches of the night, he was meditating on the law of the Lord and blessed is that person who does that. And the comfort that God brings to you is you wake up in the middle of the night, under spiritual attack, stress, anxious, and you know that God has your back. You know and you hear that the Lord is with you no matter what, every moment, gives you that trust and comfort and love from the Lord to know you can fall asleep. 
and that you can wake up tomorrow refreshed and renewed and that God's purpose for you will be ready tomorrow, that what you've done today is enough. And so that in your pocket thing is, like you said, is huge because it's hard. Who's going to speak to you in the middle of the night, right, when you wake up and you're anxious and alone and your thoughts are racing? How, how do you – it's hard to call a friend because it, it's, it's inconvenient. Uh, we can be that friend to walk alongside you. These are real people, real believers with real passion to, to just support and encourage. And so that's one of the things that um, I think is, like you said, very powerful and effective, and especially in a world where we're getting, feeling a little more cut off and isolated with some of the limitations that are put up, limitations, you know, in some houses of worship that have, you know, hopefully recently been, been, been changed. But um, that, that we can be that presence in your pocket every day, everywhere you go. Uh, and that reminder, because God is always with us, you know? So God is always with us, and God's word is always powerful, true, and effective. So, um, yeah, that's, it's, been a, it's been a joy to be able to bring this service. And then um, we're very fortunate, like, so we had the Upper thing. We partnered with Zondervan, so we have some new books coming out soon. Um, very big and successful uh, YouTube channel with, millions and millions and millions of views every month, which has been really cool too. And we have the app. So it's been great to see the community come together and just to see the encouragement that believers in two, over 200 countries are receiving every day. Um, and we're ministering to people even in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, all around the world, which is so, which is so cool. Um, and it, and it just to people like the police officers and veterans that you mentioned. So um, it's, it's, it's just so cool to see God's word being powerful and effective. You, I believe that. But then there's always that part of you that's like, if we bring scripture out, is it actually going to work? <laughs> is it actually going to be helpful? And to see and hear the testimonies, as I've mentioned, you know, many of them, of it being powerful and effective and helping people. Um, and in seasons like the Christmas season, which one would think, oh, my gosh, this is just purely about joy, but a lot of people deal with singleness and loneliness and loss, and here Scripture helps them, uh, and, and, and Abide is, is helping make that happen. So, yeah, it's, it's a joy to see God at work and um, just invite everyone to come in and participate in that alongside of us. Well, I see all the time advertised these faith-based apps. So what makes yours so much more unique than anyone else's? Uh, and why should people choose yours over hmm. anyone else's? That's a great question. And there are a lot of different case-based apps out there. Um, what is unique about ours? I think number one is being able to help you with your pain points is that we're very focused on meeting you and your need. We don't have a particular, um, angle on theology. We just believe in the core Orthodox, you know, scripture Bible, and we then try to make that relevant for whatever you're going through. And so I think that as far as I've seen, I've heard this over and over again for our audience, is that they love that, that, that Abide offers them what they need in, in, order to, um, in order to find comfort, peace, relaxation, sleep, rest, Free and emotional health and emotional wellness. If you have any challenges, um, you know, in those areas, our topical content is going to be, you know, exceptional. And the other one is our sleep content. Um, 
is just wildly popular and successful. And if you said what differentiates us there, it's that we take your whole person into consideration in that we don't just tell you a Bible story to fall asleep, but we take you through the process of winding down, of going through some simple breathing exercises, of letting your body relax, of praying over you to feel the comfort and security, and then to, and also telling you the truth in Scripture so that your whole person is ministered to. And I think that that's something that we do uniquely and exceptionally well. There are a lot of great Bible apps out there and, and, and different things that do different teachings and studies and whatnot. Uh, but I, I, I tend to find that a lot of them focus on your, your mind, like meaning like we're going to teach you something and your job is, their job is like shove more teachings into your head. Ours is more about experience. It's saying we're going to help you experience the scripture and the truth of the scripture and do that in a way that's relevant for you. So that's what I think differentiates us and, um, you know, has worked extremely well and people keep coming back over and over again every day for it. So it seems to be, seems to be helpful. Well, you know, another thing your app does, as I understand it, um, that you can be, become interactive with other members. So if you mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. a niche you're hurting or you just want someone to say a prayer for you or for someone else, you can put that out there and get responses. That's right. That's right. And that has been wildly uh, powerful and effective that the community can do that for you. And you can go in and you can post, you know, the testimonials, the prayer requests, support requests get prayed for, even, you know, get uh, supported if you need a subscription for the app, uh, other people walking alongside of that. And that is just so beautiful to see the community of Christ coming together. So that's something that absolutely you can do inside of Abide. And I would just say for anybody to go in and read those testimonials of inspiration, as well as the needs and pray for them, it will move your heart. You will, I mean, the stories you hear of, people who have suffered and overcome um, loss. I mean, oh my gosh, oh, uh, loss of parents, loss of children, loss of loved ones, um, jobs, finances, and to see how God is moving to help them overcome. Um, and the encouragement, you know, as well as walking alongside of people through those circumstances, you know, moves your heart um, as, as well as, you know, um, the other sides of just seeing God do the extraordinary and the unexpected. So yeah, that is really something neat and special inside of the app and um, has been a beautiful, just a heartwarming, um, you know, experience to see it. And I would invite you to come in and take a look at because really, um, you know, that encouragement that we want to give each other in, in, in faith uh, is very strong there and, and, and it works very well in Abide. Well, you, you're right that prayer is a three-way experience. Explain that. Well, prayer, prayer, is, prayer is, a, is, is an amazing and a wonderful and awesome thing because as far as a, a sort of multifaceted experience, prayer is, remember, Jesus prays for you, right? If you go back into John 17. So prayer is us, at, you know, we're asking God and praising God for things. God is praying for us. We're praying for each other. So prayer is moving in all these different directions of communication. And 
the, another, that is just powerful in and of itself, right? And it's constantly happening. And God is responding to those prayers and encouraging us to pray for others. So there, there's this multi, you know, uh, channel of communication going on in the spiritual realm and through prayer. And I can't say enough of like how powerful prayer will transform your life. And that was actually our original vision. And the thing that God sort of put in my heart launching this was prayer. And one of the things, one of the words that I felt God speak to me around this was that I, I personally am not big enough to understand how God moves through prayer. And God has since revealed to me some things specifically around prayer that are incredibly powerful um, that are very true in line with scripture. And, you know, one of those is quite simply that when you pray something, right. And you're speaking that with the Lord, God is hearing that prayer. It says that the prayers of the saints are burning as incense before God in heaven and revelation. Your prayer isn't just a one-off thing. Those prayers endure. And though that God is continuing eternally to have this, that prayer that you prayed in front of him. And so prayers even, you know, uh, that you, that you pray for your children will continue to endure. And for your grandchildren, you know, part of what I'm being blessed by are the prayers that my grandparents said for me and my grandma said for me nightly, you know, prayer is just such a powerful thing it's, it's really kind of mind-blowing what happens through it. So in terms of that three-way thing that you said, too, about, you know, um, our communication with God, God communicating with us, and us praying for each other, it is just – it's essential and life-transforming. And I think a lot of people have trouble praying. And me, you know, to, to go into this in more detail, we found in talking to users over the most – common spiritual behavior that all Christians, that Christians say they do. Somewhere around 80-90% of believers say they try to pray every day. And yet almost 75% of them are unsatisfied with their experience because they're like, I don't know how to pray. So here people are like trying to pray every day and they're not actually satisfied with the experience. And I think the biggest reason comes back, if I can emphasize this and say one of the things that we do extremely well is pray scripture. If I could just encourage every one of your listeners to pray scripture, it is the most powerful, the most effective way to pray that I can just mind blowing. And that's one of the things we do in abide in all of our, you know, uh, Bible meditations and stories is we take scripture. We basically just say, God, may this be true in my life. May this be true in the world. May this be true. (laughs) Because God's word is true. And when you say, Lord, would you make this true in my life, whether it's healing or blessing or um, revelation of wisdom, there's just so many different things, protection um, that God wants to do in your life. Sorry to get really excited about this topic so I could talk about it for a long time. (laughs) But if you just pray scripture, take the word of God and pray it and say it and pray it over your children. Pray it over your husband or wife. If you're, have, you're struggling in relationship with them, pray it over yourself to be like, Lord, may this be true in my life. Some of them are hard, right, about forgiveness and forgiving others and having mercy when it's hard. Some scriptures you're like, oh, my gosh, this is challenging. But if you, we pray for that to be true in our life and in other people's lives, and we are willing to receive the transformation of God through that, oh, 
Like, I'm like, if we could just do that every day, I'm telling you, the world would be changed and transformed. Uh, so when, it, when, it, when we come into prayer, and I've just seen that over and over again. So that's one of our, we're talking about like our formulas, right? But that's in scripture. It, you know, uh, you see over and over again uh, people uh, praying, and, refer- and the Psalms are basically for that. They were written to pray is that you pray these and you say these and you say them every day and they're transformative. If I could just encourage anything, if you need encouragement or joy or strength or healing, or trust or finances, whatever, go into the abide, find those. And we guide you through how to pray for it. We'll be like, here's the scripture. Here's how you can pray for this to be true in your life. And I'm telling you, it's just transformational because people are like, why don't I do this every day? And I'm like, I don't know. Why don't you <laughs> come join us? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a transformational experience to pray scripture every day because you're like, why didn't I do that? Uh, I, I, it, it, it's mind-blowing. So I, if I can encourage you, to, you know, one of the takeaways and one of the things that I abide is really well and is to help you pray scripture through the issues that you're going through. Um, and um, my, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, people often ask, how do you pray? And I basically say, you talk to God like you're talking to anyone else. You, you just sure. have a conversation with the Lord. You don't have to do a structured prayer. If, you, if that gives you comfort, fine. But carry on a conversation with God, and that is your prayer. Let him know what you're feeling. Let him know that you are grateful. Let, just conversation like you have with anyone else because God understands he'll know what's in your heart and every time I have done that there's always been hmm. some small miracle that's happened and once in a while a big one uh, but he he does listen at all times and maybe if he doesn't answer that is also his answer yeah that, no absolutely and being authentic what I love about what you just said is you're being real you're not trying to make things up. You're not trying to say things you don't actually feel. And you're, you're telling God, and God wants to hear what's on your mind, right? Like, and so I agree with you. Like, just say what's on your mind and say what you're thinking and feeling. And um, that's, and, and one of the things I, you know, I love is that the Bible even, that's a lot of the stories in the Bible of people just being authentic with, with God. Bring it in. Be real. God is big enough to hear your issues. <laughs> you know, uh, God's not going to be surprised when I'd be like, you know, I had no idea that you were going through that. Or like, you know, just condemning God, you know, God is there for, for, to receive you and welcome you in. And you see that over and over again in scripture where Jesus just welcomes people in, no matter where they're at, welcomes them in. Says, just be, you are welcome as you are. Um, you don't have to be perfect first. Because if we did, none of us would ever pray anything, right? We're all <laughs> – so <laughs> that, that I, I love what you said about just say what's on your mind because it's almost like God gives the First Amendment issue, right? It's like you have freedom of expression. God's like, go express yourself, right? Like I want to hear every moment of every day. God wants to hear what you're thinking and what you have to say, which is, which is a, a crazy thing to realize. And yeah, very – you just said something very important. You don't need a set time, a set place. Uh, you don't have to have a set issue in order to make a prayer. There's a lot of times I'll walk outside and I'll look at that blue of the South Carolina sky and just thank the Lord mm. for such beauty. You know, it's just sometimes those little tiny things can be also a, a, 
a silent prayer. Just, you know, look, look around you. And if you do, just take a moment or two. You can see the thousand and one different things which God touches our life, whether it's the blooming of a rose or a clear mm. summer sky or even the smile of a stranger as you pass. You know, there's, there's a thousand and one little things that he does to remind us he's here every day. We just got to wake up and see them and thank him for that. Uh, amen to that, because gratitude is one of the things that, want, that we try to get people to practice as well, is just seeing what God is doing, seeing where God is present, seeing how, like you said, we were talking about the, the Carolina blue sky, and you just look at it and you say, this is beautiful and inspiring, and thank you for it, Lord. That practice is transformational. Um, um, you know, it's an invitation that I would encourage others to come into. It's something that I actually practice with my kids every night. Um, it's the, the, the gratitude prayers, so having them say, I've, I've got three boys, and sitting in their room at night, they're, they're three 10-year-old boys, actually two are adopted twins. And, and, and that's what we do. We do that gratitude prayer every single night. And so they come to expect it. That they're, and they're already telling me the things that they're thankful for in our prayer to the Lord like, as we jump in. And how beautiful is that? And I would encourage each of us in our own, whether it's silent, alone, or in group with family, that experience is mind-opening because how are you going to complain when you see the beauty of what the Lord is doing for you, you know? Uh, so that's – anyway, I, 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 love, I love your message there on board with the encouragement of that and, and that's something that actually Abide can help with is being able to do this too because um, we, we, we completely support and endorse and try to try to provide that content so it's very fun yeah no, and I was looking at you know the webpage where you had the article out there when God calls you better show up and as soon as I read that title I'm thinking Jonah you weren't listening were you <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. You, know, you also have to understand yeah. that God also has sense of humor too. I mean, look at it. She made man. <laughs> that's my joke. <laughs> no, that's a good one. No, when and and uh it's a hard one in Silicon Valley because I gotta be honest with this, is when I really felt called to do this ministry and say, okay, I'm going to leave Google. I'm going to leave a really good paying job that in Silicon Valley is very um, uh, looked up to, right? Admired to be like, oh, wow, this is great. You've got the senior role at this great company. Um, and, and I went to tell my wife though, I said, oh, here's a little side story is I've been praying about this, working on this, had a team, uh, people who were thinking about this together. And I was just like, Oh Lord, am I supposed to do this? And God was like, you got to leave. You got to go. And I went, and I was like, I got to tell my wife. She knows I've been working on this, but I went to my wife and this is where again, prayer and God moving in other people's lives is so powerful. I went to tell my wife, and I said, okay, so I'm really feeling like God wants me to leave this job where we have security and everything's good in order to pursue this path. <laughs> man, I made the right person. Uh, well, um, yes, you sounds like you did. You, it sounds like you did. Um, 
But people can find your app by going onto Google Play or any of the other places where they download Correct. apps onto the smart devices and just Google in Abide Meditation and the app will pop up straight up on top. It's a fast download. It's very easy to use, very interactive. And thank you for the good work you're doing. And if I don't talk to you before the holidays, have a very Merry Christmas. You too, and thank you for the time. It has been our pleasure. Check it out. Uh, His website you can download is Abide Meditation. And I want to say thank you for having such a wonderful guest with us. we got our next uh, victim up in on the line. Always a great pleasure to speak with him from the Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. And Hans, it is heating up out there. This election thing, can can it get any zanier? (laughs) Well, it it has been a very interesting week, um, you know, with Texas filing a lawsuit directly with the Supreme Court or asking permission to file a lawsuit directly with the Supreme Court with the support of over 17 other states. So I've never seen this happen before. You know, this is really unprecedented what's going on. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been quite a contentious election, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I had a laugh the other day. uh, A really good friend of mine. Uh, sent me an email because I'm here in South Carolina saying, we've got to send this out to as many people. It was one of these chain emails. And I, I don't like those right. things to begin with because 95% of the time they have information there that's all wrong uh, to our state attorney general, Alan Wilson, who happens to be a friend of mine. Uh, he and his dad, Joe, um, <laughs> he lied, Joe Wilson, <laughs> um, to inundate him with emails to join in on the Texas uh, lawsuit. And I said, you're about a day late and dollar short. He did that yesterday. <laughs> I said, if anyone, I know Alan Wilson would have been on that like a fly on crap. And uh, sure enough, he was one of the first ones to jump in on the bandwagon. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, uh, it's uh, it's Friday, and that means that um, the Supreme Court is having its internal meeting today where they discuss uh, – new cases and potential cases, and they decide whether to take them or not. So uh, today is when I'm sure they were discussing this case and whether to allow it to go forward or not. So we we might know as as early as this evening or uh, this weekend for sure, I think, by Monday. Well, you know, uh, someone up on LinkedIn sent me a message. Um, He ran as an independent candidate for the independent party out of Pennsylvania. And he's attempting to start another lawsuit up there stating that Pennsylvania violated their state constitution and law uh, by not putting clear instructions on each ballot, stating that 95% of the ballots that were, were cast did not have the instructions on it as per the law and state constitution. He's trying to throw out all of the 55 electoral college members from the state of Pennsylvania. Have you heard about this one? No, I haven't heard about that uh, lawsuit. That, that, that's a new one. You know, the, the big news was the uh, Supreme Court refusing to take the other case out of Pennsylvania, the one that had been filed by Congressman Kelly, that alleged that when the state legislature last year 
changed the law on absentee ballots. And, and Pennsylvania went from a state where you required an excuse to use an absentee ballot to a, a no-excuse state that they had violated the state constitution and that the only way to do that was actually to amend the state constitution. But the Supreme Court, as you know, refused to take that case. Yeah, that's, that is a curious one. So that, that lawsuit's got no legs and it's not going to go anywhere then. Correct. Yeah. So now um, the Supremes, the Supremes are meeting today to decide whether or not to hear that case. I also saw that Ted Cruz was asked to argue it before the Supremes. And he said yes to that one. Um, was it the people, the people of Texas that asked Ted Cruz or was that Julia um, Trump's camp that asked him? No, it was Trump's campaign that asked, and, and keep in mind that it wasn't the Trump campaign that filed this lawsuit. It was the state of Texas. So it's the state of Texas that would decide if the Supreme Court allowed the case to go forward, who would argue it. The Trump campaign did file um, a motion or request to be allowed to intervene in this lawsuit if to go forward. And I, look, I think it's important for people to understand what's going on here. Um, you know, under our Constitution, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has what's called original jurisdiction over any disputes between states. So if, if for example, for some reason, South Carolina wanted to sue North Carolina, they, do, they wouldn't have to go to just some local federal court. They could go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's, of course, what's going on here. Texas wants to sue uh, four states. But under the Supreme Court's rules, a state can't just file a lawsuit with the Supreme Court. They first have to ask permission from the Supreme Court to sue the other state. And that's what happened on Monday. Shortly before midnight on Monday, Texas filed a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court asking for permission to sue Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin um, and they, they did attach the complaint as an exhibit. This is the complaint we would like to file, basically. So Thursday uh, gave as a deadline to those four states to file briefs explaining why uh, Texas should not be allowed to sue them. They, they all filed by 3 o'clock yesterday. And what's going on today is uh, the, the internal meeting, like I said, where they decide whether or not to do it. So so the lawsuit hasn't actually been filed. We're waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether they're going to allow the lawsuit to be filed or not. So then the other 17 states that jumped on board, they also had to file everything by 3 o'clock yesterday? Well, they filed. They didn't actually join in the lawsuit. What they did is they filed an amicus brief, which is basically you know a friend of the court brief that can be filed by people who are actually parties. To it, but supporting Texas and basically saying that the Supreme Court should take the case. And that got filed, as did another brief by, I think, like 106 members of Congress also asking the court to take the case. It's getting so confusing out there. You know, it's, it's, it's got so many different uh, spoons in the pot. It's like trying to figure out who's eating what at this moment. Um, now, what is going on with Georgia with this recount? Because now we saw that 
testimony before the uh, Georgia State Legislator where they showed the videotape, the security camera videotape. What is happening there? Well, Georgia's, I mean, Georgia's pretty much over. I mean, yeah, there's still a lawsuit pending, but Georgia has now certified its election results. And I don't think, um, I'm not saying that the lawsuits they filed don't have traction. In fact, the the witness testimony in that hearing is pretty disturbing about possible misconduct and other things that happened in Georgia. But um, I, I don't think the judges that down there are going to do anything to grant um, what the campaign is asking for. So, I, I mean, just from, from that standpoint, I think it's pretty much over in Georgia. The Trump campaign hasn't had much luck in other cases and other courts either. And I really think that this case that Texas is trying to file with the Supreme Court, that, that's really the, the, last, the last gasp um, of being able to potentially you know, overturn the election results. And I, and I have to tell you, while I, while I do think, uh, look, this, this lawsuit, is the complaint is well-written, it's well-researched, it, it makes strong arguments. I, I think there's merit to the claims Texas is making. Uh, I, I have my doubts that the Supreme Court will take the case. I, I hope I'm pleasantly surprised, but I just have my doubts they'll take it because the quite apart from the legal issues involved, the political controversy that would ensue if the Supreme Court took the case and then actually overturned election results in four states. I'm not sure the, I'm not sure the court is willing to do that. There might be some members of the court who are willing to do that, but I think there are others who are too politically scared to do something like that. You mean like a John Roberts? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think that's, uh, I think that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's been such a disappointment in so many ways. You, you thought that he had a conservative record, and all of a sudden he comes up with some of these crazy things, such as the Obama tax uh, is not a tax. The Obamacare tax is not a tax, right. but it's still good. You, know, it just, you, you just sit there and go, what the heck is going on in this man's mind? You know, has he lost it? But, you know, he's so becomes so unpredictable. Uh, so, you know, at this point, there's the, there is a 50-50 chance of it going either way. Now, the, the Supreme Court can make a ruling, but no remedy to the situation. What happens in that case when they say, oh, yeah, this is all wrong, but we're not going to do anything about it? What happens there? Biden becomes president, right? Biden becomes president, and the only the... – what would happen is that that would become precedent. And the only advantage to that, aside from, you know, the fact that it wouldn't change the election, the only advantage to that would be to prevent the kind of behavior that occurred in this election from hopefully happening again. And what I mean by that is, um, look, the, the lawsuit that Texas filed is pretty lengthy, but the essence of the suit is that in all four of these states, there were changes made in the election rules, particularly with regard to absentee ballots, not by the state legislatures. The changes were made by executive branch officials in the state government, secretaries of state, governors, basically overriding the state laws by the state legislatures. And what Texas is saying is, and I think they're correct about this, is that 
that violated the U.S. Constitution. The reason being that the electors clause in the Constitution, that's in Article 2, gives the authority to state legislatures to set the rules for presidential elections. So if the state legislatures had wanted to change the rules, like in Pennsylvania, they could have done that. But that's not what happened. Instead, the Secretary of State, for example, in Pennsylvania, overrode the state law. State law in Pennsylvania said absentee ballots have to be returned by voters by Election Day. The Secretary of State came out and said, uh, no, no, never mind the state law. We're going to accept absentee ballots for three days after Election Day. And what Texas is saying is that violated the U.S. Constitution. No ballots that were received um, through that change in the rules should be considered valid. And as a result, what Texas is asking for is two potential remedies. The first they ask for is that the electoral college votes from those states not be counted and instead those states be ordered to hold new special elections and in the alternative the court should order their state legislatures to appoint a new set of electors in compliance with the constitution that's that's a very big ask that's never happened in our entire history and i i just doubt that uh, there are enough votes on the court to 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 do that. You know, everyone talked about the safe harbor date. Now that date has come and passed, and now they're saying right. the next date is now January twentieth. So, in other words, anything can happen up to, up until the date of ele- uh, inauguration. Is this true or not? Well, the electoral college meets on Monday. And that's where the electors go to their state capitals in every state, and they cast their ballots. Those electoral college votes then will be sent to Congress, where on January 6th, Congress holds a joint session, and the votes are opened from each state, and they are counted. Um, And then on January 20th, of course, that's Inauguration Day, because that's officially the end of the president's term. Um, the longer you go, the more difficult I think it is to overturn election results, particularly after the Electoral College meets on Monday. Now, yeah, the Supreme Court could still act and say that of the Electoral College votes cast on Monday, the, the votes of certain states are not valid, and, and no one, I don't think anyone could question that. But it just gets more difficult. The, uh, the later you get and the closer you get to that January 6th congressional date and the January 20th, 20th inaugural date. Well, you know, they've been saying there's been no hanky-panky with these elections, but you at the Heritage have been keeping track, not of every single case of fraud, but the vast majority of them, and you, you explain them very, very well. Where can people find this information on the Heritage site? Sure. If they go to heritage.org, heritage.org slash voter fraud, um, they will find our election fraud database. And the database um, uh, lists proven cases of fraud from all over the country. So it's not allegations or claims that something happened. These are proven cases. These are cases where someone was either convicted in a court of law of engaging in fraud or a judge ordered a new election 
because of fraud or there was an official finding by a state agency like a board of elections, um, like what happened two years ago, you'll recall, in North Carolina, of course, the congressional race in the 9th Congressional District was overturned by the state board of elections because of absentee ballot fraud. Which was done by a Republican, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, Republicans also do voter fraud. Um, it, it, I, I find it uh, – my sister had moved from New York just recently down to Georgia, and they just recently changed their driver's license registered to vote. And she said, well, I haven't gotten my voter um, ID card in the mail yet. So I go on to the Georgia site. I put her information in, and it's she isn't officially registered because no one entered the data in. So then I pulled up where she lived in New York, and she was still registered there. And this is a problem we have. When people move from one state to another, they don't realize that they've got to contact their old state and ask them to remove them from the voters' rolls. This is where a lot of this, this problem has come up with, with people voting in two states. Well, that's true. In fact, uh, I don't know if you recall this, but um... – not too long ago, a Democratic congressional candidate in Maryland, her, her name was Wendy Rosen. She won the Democratic primary. She was going to uh, be running against the Republican incumbent for Congress. This was, I think, 2012. And someone discovered that um, she was registered to vote in Maryland and had voted in Maryland. But apparently at the very same time, she was registered to vote and had voted in Florida also. And she was actually forced out of the race. She pleaded guilty to engaging in, in fraud. But, you know, the, the real um, rule from that story is, is that she'd gotten away with this for years. And election officials in either Florida or Maryland realized this was happening. The only reason this was discovered was because she decided to run for Congress. And apparently somebody was doing opposition research on her, and they dug up that she had illegally voted multiple times in two different states. And unfortunately, that shows how easy it is to be registered in two different states, vote in two different states. And I got to tell you, your chances of getting caught are pretty slim. Well, we had a council member doing that to us. Uh, He was sitting, it was a sitting member of our county council voting on council issues. uh, And yet he was living in North Carolina and voting in the elections in North Carolina. And it's like, wait a minute, there is a problem here. I mean, if you're going to be on a county council, don't you think you live in the county you're a member of the council of? It's amazing what people will try to pull and get away with. Well, that's the biggest problem we have right now, is it's unfortunately easy to get away with these kind of things because we have so many security holes in our election process, we pretty much have an honor system. You know, our database, you know, documents proven cases, but uh, those being discovered is the exception rather than the rule. Um, There's a lot more of this that goes on than is evidenced in our database. that's, That's the shameful thing. Unless someone knows about it and reports on it, you have no way of knowing what, what, what is actually going on, uh, such as ballot harvesting. You know, uh, we had our county GOP meeting, and 99% of the ro- people in the room that were members of the county party, most of them on the executive board, did not even know in South Carolina, 
there is voter harvesting. And, and this is another uh, open avenue to fraud. Yeah, unfortunately it is. Um, for folks who don't, you know, I'm sure they've heard this term now, and they're wondering, well, what the heck is vote harvest day? We should probably explain that, uh, look, in every state when you vote by absentee ballot, you can either uh, mail it back or you or a member of your family can return it. Unfortunately, in some states, they have legalized vote harvesting, which means that in addition to members of your family, any other third-party stranger can show up at your front door and offer to return your ballot for you. And that, of course, is just very unwise policy because it means that you're putting your ballot, which is a very valuable commodity, into the hands of people who may have a stake in the outcome of the election, candidates, campaign staffers, party activists, political consultants. And they may alter or change your ballot, which is exactly what happened in that North Carolina race we were talking about in the 9th Congressional District two years ago. Yeah, and, and the most vulnerable are the elderly. So if you're yeah. in a home, a, a care, you may have dementia, and someone can go in, have you sign a ballot, have it witnessed, and turn it in. And you have no idea what just went on. Or you can be where you're an endangered elder person or a handicapped person, and you may have someone intimidate you into signing a ballot and letting them harvest it. It is such a a prickly area in which we've got to close these loopholes. Yeah, we do. In fact, um, about uh, two months ago, uh, to give you an example of this, the Texas Attorney General indicted a social worker in Texas on 134 felony counts because she was working in a state-supported institution for people who are uh, mentally incapacitated. In fact, um, many of the residents have been declared uh, mentally incompetent by Texas courts, and she was registering them to vote without their consent or knowledge, obviously um, intending to then request absentee ballots in their name so she could vote their ballots for them. Fortunately, she was caught during the registration process, but uh, if it hadn't been for that, she might have gotten away with that. It's a very, very scary thought because when I was watching some of the um, interviews dealing with the Georgia uh, election There was one woman that had told Newsmax that uh, there was a whole box of ballots that came from a men's rehab facility. And they were completely unaware that someone even went over there to harvest the ballots. Lo and behold, they were all for Biden. But there's no fraud there. (laughs) Well, that's just one of many problems that were cited in the legislative (laughs) uh, hearings that occurred there. And look, the one thing I would hope no matter what comes out of this presidential election, the one thing I would hope is that all of these problems, all of these issues that we have seen raised um, all over the country will finally make legislators, state legislators realize that they have got to fix all of these problems so that we don't have what happened this year happen again. That, that's what we can hope and pray for because there's a lot of holes. We, the 
uh, hacking of the Dominion machines with our ballots being counted in Canada and France and Germany. I mean, I thought we weren't supposed to have any foreign entity interfering with our elections, and yet we we use machines that were not even manufactured in the United States. There are so many areas that there was so much wrong with. Well, that's another issue that uh, we have to take up, and that is the kind of voting machines that are used in the country. Is the testing sufficient um, on on those machines? And that's that's an issue that hasn't really been been addressed. Now, I got to say, for the state of South Carolina, our machines were manufactured in Omaha, Nebraska, by Americans, <laughs> and we <laughs> we had very few problems. But you know, it's always Hans. Very very fun to always speak with you. People can follow you by going to heritage dot org, and also going over to where you are reporting on known cases of voter fraud that you have to. Do. You can't catch every last one, but you do catch a fair large amount of them. Well, yeah, and I I appreciate you inviting me back on to talk. Oh, you're all you've got an open invitation, and just just tell Tom ah, I got something to talk about. Get me on the show, <laughs> always. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for having me, and uh, hey, Merry Christmas to you and uh, uh, all of your listeners. Thank you. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and Happy Hanukkah to the listeners out there. Hans von Spakowski. I love saying his name. It just kind of like drips off my tongue. You can check him at heritage.org. And that's just about all we got for our show. We're down to inside our last five minutes of the show. Um, We will be taking off Christmas Day and New Year's Day. They both fall on a Friday. And I'm sorry, I am probably be going to nurse a bottle of champagne on New Year's Day. So... (laughs) We will we will be back next week, and then we'll have two weeks off. Um, but that's all about all I got. And uh, you want to say good night, Yanni? Uh, good night. And God bless. Me. And God bless. And Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. To you all. <laughs> right. A little southern here. But we're going to close off with the song from Gary Pecorella, uh, Save America. I love this song. I love playing it. And sometimes it just sits in my head and just won't go away where we stand for the flag and we kneel at the cross. So, Curtis, uh, if you're listening, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Curtis. Merry Christmas. Get Carolyn well soon. Too. And Carolyn. I uh, hope to have you back after the start of the year. So I want to thank everyone that was listening over at Facebook and up over here on Blog Talk Radio, everywhere else at iHeart, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show to catch the archives, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And here is Gary Pecorella, Save America. Love.